Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 60, Toxic Soil. Welcome to the podcast where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regarded as our task to brush history against the grain. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me as always, my co-host, Chris Padgett. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. Well, it's good to talk to you. Seems like it's been a minute. It's been a while. You were in uh, health and safety protocols. They delayed us a little bit, right? Yeah, in fact, if the NBA calls at least health and safety protocols is there. I've been in health and safety protocol. I I like to think of myself as a a marvel of modern science. Uh, Of course, what we're talking about is my recent bout with COVID. I feel like our our podcast has grown up around COVID, has it not? (laughs) It's grown up entirely around in COVID times. Right. Um, So and and you're the first you're the the first one of us to, to get it. So congrats. I know it's, and I'm a marvel because uh, you know a man who never leaves his house gets COVID. Right? <laughs> it's like they came those little uh, Omicron uh, viral particles I mean, came in through the mail slot or something. Yeah, uh, scientists will be studying you for years. I'm, I'm not going to get any Trader Joe's Trader Joe's endorsements because I, I think that may have been the place. Is uh, that right? So they're probably not going to have me doing their holiday commercials, but. Uh, yeah, so for uh, I guess until day ten, I tested positive, and it was trippy, Josh. You know, I mean, it was um, it was kind of I, I think I described to you as kind of a fog, you know. Yeah, uh, it wasn't so dramatic. Like, there were a lot of dramatic events associated with it, um, but I was just sort of walking around in a stupor, and it was great because I caught up on decades of nap time <laughs> that I've missed, you know. All uh-huh. I had to do was lay down and close my eyes, and I went to sleep like nothing to it. You're 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 basically doing an advertisement for COVID right now for a lot of people. <laughs> I know I guess don't get COVID people. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't. First of all, I, yeah, let me be clear. I would not recommend anybody get COVID. All right, lest it sound like I'm waxing, you know, nostalgic about it or something. Yeah. As as we do this today, I'm drinking my honey chamomile tea. So if that tells you anything, <laughs> let me just say something for for the lawyers. Um, History against the grain does not condone or endorse COVID in any way. We're an anti-COVID podcast and uh, have remained so since the beginning. Yes, absolutely. And I was double vaxxed. Again, I, I was poster child for someone who's not going to get it. And right. I got it anyway. So, uh, and then gave it to my wife. Oh, no. Yeah. So, you know, it's really lovely. But uh, I'm happy to be here today. Anxious to do uh, our 60th episode. Round number. Uh, yeah. Right. Who 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 would have thunk it? I think uh, uh, they said a scattering report was these guys will never get past episode six. <laughs> uh, Ten times that. Um, yeah. Wait, well, we, we, when we renegotiate our contract, I think we got Scott Burroughs as our agent, right? The, the famous yeah, agent. We're going to get 13 years and 650 million. Absolutely. Um, so yesterday, we, uh, our students all turn in there 
for finals, hopefully, or most of them did. So our, our semester is also officially over. Nothing left but the grading. Uh, you got mad at me earlier. I, I said, how's the grading going? Just as, you know, just as a just as a nicety. I think you told me to fuck off. I think that was your response. There's some real smart aleck, ain't you? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, for years and years, my own mother would say to me, you know, she'd say, when does school end? I'd say, well, today's the last day, right? right. And she'd say, oh, I'm glad you're done. And I'd be like, well, you know, I'm not done, mom. I, I, I you know, I got to, now I have to grade the finals and tabulate the scores, the semester's worth of scores, you know, uh, because I do it on like on a spreadsheet and, mm -hmm. you know, and um, she'd be like, oh yeah, well, I'm glad you're done. <laughs> you know, just piss me off. So civilian uh, civilians don't understand what we do. Don't. <laughs> uh, so I should be done. You know, for for those who are keeping track, I would say certainly by this time next week, maybe as early as oh, I don't know Tuesday or so. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's right. That our for some reason our campus gave us till January third to turn our stuff in, which is a bad idea. I, I want a deadline that's like. Mm -hmm. six hours after stuff gets turned in because i will get it done if you give me that deadline but i'm a little worried that i'm gonna i'm gonna take the full few weeks here to to get things done drag well, it out it's easier than it used to be you know for as many years now we've been able to do it um you know via um, the internet right you know we submit yep. our electronically uh but back in the day let me tell you and i and i and i i don't think this is one of those before your time i think you uh, we were still doing it this way, right? When you when you got to the colleges, uh, you had a a hard copy, like yeah. a kind of a duplicate thing, you know, like a carbon or something, and and so you would fill in the little bubbles, and then del hand deliver it to the administration building, where right. you know, depending on what time you got there, I it was always you know it has to be here by four o'clock, right? Yeah, the last day possible to turn in your grades, and you you know usually I'd get there on that day, but maybe a little earlier in the day, you know, like maybe, uh, but let's say, let's go turn in my grades and we'll go to lunch or something, you know, but it was yeah. almost always that last day. Anyway, uh, there was the one time though, that I ran it right up to uh, the end and I got there and I realized, you know, all my, all my soulmates were there. <laughs> you know, Cause yep. there was like a line. Your people. <laughs> yes. I felt like, you know, I would finally found my people were all lined up you know, like mendicants or something, you know, like four, three fifty nine. <laughs> yep. So, but the funny thing is we, we, you know, you got a bunch of, again, Weisenheimers together, a bunch of academics, you know, because by the time you got up to the window, it was after four o'clock and they were still going strong. The office, all the lights were still on and everything, you know, and we're like, what happens? Nothing. The answer yep. is nothing. If you get late, nothing happens. Right. It's a good, there's a lot of good lessons in this. Yeah. <laughs> we thought, I don't know what I thought was, you know, like what a trap door would open or something, maybe swallowed up into perdition. And, and it's like, no, nothing actually happened. Uh, but I understood then something about organizational psychology, right? Yep. Is the, you know, the way we're like, you know, little uh, BF Skinner experiments, you know, behavioral psychology mm -hmm. <laughs> running us around the, the rat maze, you know? Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that that was uh, quite nice, but uh, it is easier, and I would have less excuse than ever to get it done since the third is the deadline. Now, the last thing I want to do, as I think you're saying, you know, you don't have stuff hanging over your head. No, you know, through not through. more more stuff. That's the, <laughs> there's plenty of stuff hanging over my head, but yeah, one more <laughs> thing is not unnecessary. 
we're going <laughs> to, excuse me, we're going to devote a, and I apologize in advance for my, my lingering uh, code cough. I'm going to try to mute it. Uh, but uh, we're going to do a whole episode in the future, Josh, I think. It's going to be called Stuff Hanging Over Josh's Head. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it'll just be a list. It'll be in list list form, like a BuzzFeed article or something like that. Well, now that the uh, fall semester is over, you got to start thinking about the next semester because you're going to be back teaching the classroom again for the first time. What's it going to be? Three Is it three years, almost three years? Yeah, I guess so. I left uh, midstream in the semester of spring semester of 2021, yeah. so two years. 2020. Is that when it was? 2020? Yeah. <laughs> Time flies. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, th- I mean, th- that gets at the point is that you got to now think about, uh, so what's your what's your U.S. history class going to be? Because, you know, we started this podcast with this question, um, you know, death or with a statement, you know, death to the U.S. history survey. But now, you know, you're assigned to teach that class. So what are you thinking as you as you go into or we start thinking about the spring semester and and how that class is going to work? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer to that, Josh, is I don't know the foggiest. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's a dilemma because not only has it been now three years, as you point out. Yeah. Uh, but being on the other side of the apocalypse, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how to unring the bell. I mean, what we've been doing for sixty episodes is making um, an impassioned plea to change the way we do history, particularly where the national survey is concerned, to do a history without borders, et cetera. And we have spent mm-hmm. a great deal of time, wouldn't you say, getting into the granular. Uh, nature of this. So I don't know how to undo that. I mean, because if I turn around and go back, I mean, on the one hand, I'm teaching the course right now online. Yes. You know, and I've sort of, uh, you know, I've I've fooled with things and tinkered with things online. It's a little bit easier, right? You know, because Absolutely. you yeah. take something up, put something else in. But because I've been working on this other book project, I haven't devoted as much time as I intend to thoroughly revising it. Now, for, for those who may be unused to thinking in these ways, we we work within an institutional paradigm that, among other things, presumes to have a, a procedure for everything, including a curriculum. Yeah. And so in the letter of the law, there's a curriculum outline for this course. Specifically, the one we're talking about now is the U.S. History Survey course, what we usually call the first half, which is the history of the United States up through, oh, now it's 1876, mm-hmm. all right? Uh, which then covers what we would normally call the colonial period and, and contact between Europeans and and native peoples and even pre-Columbian. I mean, in, in some ways that was where I started. That was the new course, you know, when I was at Weber State in particular teaching this, was putting a... a a huge section on pre-Columbian American history, yeah, which is before European contact, right? Before Columbus, in other words. And I, uh, as I've talked about before, it was a privilege to have a colleague who was steeped in pre-Columbian American history. So he influenced me a lot and I created a big uh, unit on that. So this isn't unprecedented is what I'm trying to say. We should be revising these things as we go along, right? Uh, we don't want these hidebound 
histories, you know, that we inherited from our grandfathers or something. Because the fact is, the work continues. And so how do I throw myself into that um, is an interesting question. And I don't, you know, I may have ideas. Let's put it that way. I'm entertaining notions. <laughs> yes, that's a good start. Well, there's a book we've been we've been thinking about or that's come out recently. That's we've been kind of thinking about, um, I think, for your class specifically, you know, how it can help you know, um, help you rethink what you're going to do, particularly in that, that quote unquote colonial period. But it's also just a, a good example of the need to, to just reimagine history um, in, in some new ways and, and give voice to maybe some perspectives that haven't previously been, um, been provided. And that's a book by a Finnish historian who's at Oxford, uh, Pekka Hanalainen, I think is how we say the name. The book is called Indigenous Continent. Um, and just can, can, maybe just you can talk about the way that book, or at least the discussion around that book, has has is influencing maybe how you're gonna, you're thinking about uh, going into next semester. Oh yeah, I would love to. Uh, first, let me let me add, and I know you wouldn't you wouldn't disagree with me. Is it yes? It it applies most pointedly to this U.S. history survey. Yeah, um, but it also applies to world history. I think because so. I think in some ways, world history for for all the really wonderful and and much needed perspectives, you know, that that have been created for understanding the the bigger picture history of of our species. Um, a lot of the modern world history still sort of follows what I call the sovereignty trap. Yes. So you know, when you get to that early modern period, you know, a lot of the discussion ends up being about what governments were doing, what armies were doing you know, what empires were doing, et cetera. And so I think, uh, although I'm not teaching what we call History 308 right now, uh, which is this, the modern world history course, uh, I, I would be just as diligent in trying to reimagine how I would teach that class as well, you know, yes. uh, given the new uh, so-called new native history that's being done, including uh, Hamilton's book that I'm going to talk about here. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think this has pretty broad application. Now, the book, which was just published uh, in the last few months called Indigenous Continent, the Epic Contest for North America, is part of what uh, we call the new Native American history, which has been ongoing now uh, for quite a bit. Um, certainly, I would say since the 1980s, but uh, even more pronounced uh, in the last, say, 20 years. Uh, in fact, there's really three books here. There's the Hamelanian book. There's one forthcoming in this spring uh, by a Yale historian named Ned Blackhawk, a native writer and historian, Ned Blackhawk, The Rediscovery of America, Native Peoples and the Unmaking of U.S. History, a similar effort to what Hamelanian has done, and then uh, I would also point out, because we've mentioned it before, uh, a book that was done now about eight years ago by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz called An Indigenous People's History of the United States. And, you know, what all these books have in common is that they seek to redraw the big picture narrative of North America over the last, say, 300 to 400 years. That is basically from the time of European arrival. Uh, and 
I think, look, it, it might be that one of the great understatements of all time to say that the Native American history has been poorly served in the <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. of U.S. history. Would you agree Absolutely. With that? Well, I would say, I mean, I think you mentioned world history as well. I can speak to that more. I mean, unfortunately, um, the way it, it tends to work in world history is is Native people show up just to just to disappear. Um, and I don't think it's actually, you know, that's again, that's I'll say because I don't never taught U.S. history, but I think that's certainly also the case in 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 U.S. history. It's even more pronounced in many ways because mm-hmm. you are talking, you know, fundamentally about the territory that those people lived on, and and you know that's the the main focus of your classes. But yeah, it's it's absolutely underserved in in these history classes. Yeah, in fact, uh, I have a nice blurb here from uh, Ned Blackhawk. Uh, who sort of, uh, in, in reviewing the Hamelanian book, um, kind of encapsulating this, he says, scholars of American history long failed to treat Native peoples as influential actors. Mm-hmm. In a story whose early chapters were organized around Puritans, patriots, and presidents, Indigenous peoples only received mention so that they could be vanquished. Yeah. Sort of speaking to your point there, Josh. These Absolutely. presumptions have remained so ingrained that even as Native American history has flourished over the past generation, few have attempted to synthesize the role that indigenous people played in the story of North America more generally. Scholars tend to instead focus on the the details, narrating the stories of different groups at different times. Now, there's actually a lot of really cool stuff there. He's saying, among other things, that this is what we call synthesis, Mm -hmm. right? Which is an effort to take all the particular stories, the monographs, as we call them, focusing on specific peoples at specific times, usually smaller scale, geographically, chronologically stories, more particular stories. In this case, say, focusing, let's say, on a, a specific Native American people, right, in a specific right. region. To take all those many monographs and to weave them in something like what we might call a synthesis or larger narrative, integrated narrative uh, of the history so that we can begin to see the big picture. And that's what's really exciting about these, these books. Um, I mean, you know, the academic in me says, look, there, you know, the reviews have been mixed on the Hamelanian book. Uh, Ned Blackhawk himself wrote a piece. We can post it in the episode notes um, that was pretty critical of, of Hamelanian's uh, work. So so it's not to say, therefore, that these efforts are unblemished or don't have problems. But to me, the significant thing is that they're being undertaken because what has dominated, particularly with U.S. history, is the sovereignty narrative of American power and government and related economic interests and military interests. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we might call it a great man history. Uh, that has been the dominant synthesis. In fact, sometimes they say with U.S. history that it follows the presidential synthesis. That is, you just organize your U.S. history class per presidential administrations, right? Yeah. So, you know, this week we're moving into the era of Rutherford B. Hayes. <laughs> Always the most popular part, part of the class. <laughs> so, uh, so that's a thing, right? Yeah. And uh and what these what these scholars are trying to do is is overturn that. That is to yeah. not just find new histories, you know, to identify and give voice to 
new stories, but to the big story yes. that we tell ourselves about who we are. And, and an example of that, and I, I really have to say, I love this because it's bold and, and I think it, it, it challenges us to think about things that we take for granted. I mean, that's one of the real difficulties of doing this, right? Is that so much of what we just casually assume about the story, we don't, we're not uh, metacognitive about it. We don't, we don't think about why we think that way. Right. We just take it for granted that that we do, you know. And so an example would be how we refer to the period before the national era of the US, say following, you know, the American Revolution. Uh, which, by the way, what we usually call it the colonial era, in other words, by the way, gets telescoped. I mean, even if we use sort of standard mile markers like the you know, Jamestown settlement in Virginia, often referred to as the first permanent English settlement in North America, 1607, you know, to 1776, that's that's 170 years. That's a long time yeah, <laughs> relative yeah. to you know, even the age of the nation, which I guess now we're coming up on uh, 250 years. Will it be in 2026? Um, sure. I'm not good at math. That sounds right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I was alive during the the bicentennial. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I went on a field trip in the bicentennial. <laughs> uh, so I'm now, you know, do the math, compare how old I am now. But Okay. Uh, so 170 years, and, and it gets wrapped around this idea, and that's just from English presence in North America, right? Because right. you know, before the English, there are the Spanish, and even before Jamestown, there are English people here, and you know, uh, other Europeans uh, contacts, and and so there. I mean, there's a lot going on all the way back to, I guess, the Ion uh, expedition, which is, if memory serves me, is in the 1620s maybe where modern day South Carolina is, you get one of these sort of Spanish adventurer types mm -hmm. coming from, you know, Hispaniola, right to North America. So uh, yeah. So if we extend it, you know, I mean, uh, or so, sorry, 1520s, 15, not 16. Yeah, right, right. We could extend it another century and say that colonial period is 270 years. I mean, that's not exactly you know, uh, a, a, a brief interlude, you know, that's a su substantial amount of time. But what Hamelain is saying is, so why do we call it colonial history? The only reason you call it colonial history is you're taking more or less exclusive perspective of whom? Of like six white people who happen to be on the really <laughs> edge of the continent. It's interesting because, you know, you can say similar things um, in, in world history. James C. Scott has made this point about civilization, you know, quote unquote civilization that, you know, world, and you do teach this, you know, the first part of world history. And there's that, that point in the class where you now you get to talk about quote unquote civilizations, you can move away from <laughs> earlier peoples, but he's, he's like, but there's like, you know, four places in the entire world where these kind of formations actually exist. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, a tiny, tiny minority of the total population. And we've now taken this very particular experience and then universalized it as, you know, the thing that's happening now in the world. And it's, it's a, it's, you know, you can say that stuff is important and, and what's going to come out of it is important. But the privileging of of this one experience over all others is a choice. It's a it's historical choice that we've made. Um, and it does fundamentally alter the way we think about that past in, in um, ways that are probably not super useful, I'll say. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, when we had your old uh, professor on, your, your mentor, Pat Manning, you know, Pat had written this book uh, in which he talked about the 
you know, the origins of syntactic language, right? Yeah. In the um, Paleolithic period. You know, now we're going, you know, going back. <laughs> we keep going uh, back, yep. But it's a fun, it's a fundamental evolutionary, you know, biological, culturally evolutionary moment in the species. Yeah. Uh, which which Pat wants to argue, you know, led to all kinds of things, ultimately, including something like government and large scale societies, you know. All right. So the point is language matters. And what we call something matters. We should yes. call things by their true names. You know, I mean, look. We can kid ourselves and we say, oh, it's just so much political correctness or something. But if you say colonial history, you've already bound yourself to understanding that period from the perspective of those who colonized. Yes. Because for those who weren't colonizing, in this case, the native people, and who weren't even themselves colonized, right? Because after all, when we think of the 13 colonies trope, we're talking about what? That, that kind of narrow Atlantic coastal stretch, right? From New England to, let's say, Georgia hemmed in by the Appalachian Range, you know, on the West, which leaves what? Most of the continent uncolonized, right. correct? Yeah. But if we call it colonial history, in effect, we're saying, well, for all intents and purposes, it's going to be colonized. So that's how we're going to look at it. Now, is colonization a neutral term? <laughs> I mean, we spent <laughs> Not really. the episodes. Yeah railing against it, haven't we? You know, uh, the pretensions of colonization, in other words. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's, it's. I mean, you can, so first of all, you can make, you you are making the case that colonial, colonial history is privileging this very particular experience, which we're now giving, uh, you know, the, 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 the utmost importance, despite the small numbers. And and you could argue, you know, even the small impact of, of those colonists. But even at the time, like, if you're talking about, you know, the larger English presence in the Americas, English didn't really care about those those colonies in North America because they were Barbados was what mattered, you know, and Jamaica right. is what mattered. Um, so it's it's just giving this outsized importance, as you said, strictly for what we know is going to happen eventually. But we're giving it a name that suggests that that's already written in stone, that that destiny is already there. Exactly. Um, and that's still our focus, which now means we can focus. We can talk about these people to the exclusion of as you're suggesting, you know, this entire, as, as Hannah Lehman's uh, suggesting this entire indigenous continent, which now gets left behind or just subsumed that, that colonization uh, narrative. Exactly. You know, I was thinking about uh, Alan Taylor, a decorated U S historian who's written about this, this, this period, he wrote a book called American uh, colonies. Um, but he says, we often read American U uh, S history in reverse uh, that is the hindsight, you know, sort of retrofitting of our narratives um, because we know what happens later, right? We know that there will be a white or Anglo migration, you know, beyond the Appalachian into the Ohio Valley, Mississippi Valley, ultimately Trans-Mississippi. You know, I'm, we're doing our podcast from California, right? So yeah. um, we know that happens. So we just kind of retrofit the early story you know, with a kind of bling, you know, kind of eye wink or something, you know, to say, yeah, colonial history, we know what's going to happen. Yep. But the fact is, that's incredibly ahistorical because it had not happened yet. And mm -hmm. what these authors would say is it doesn't even happen the way we typically think it happened. Uh, Hamelainen says, 
uh, a sweeping, let's see, overdue retelling of U.S. history that recognizes that Native Americans are essential to the under to understanding the evolution of modern America. From Blackhawk's book, the retelling of U.S. history acknowledges the enduring power, agency, and survival of indigenous peoples, yielding to a truer account of the U.S. and revealing anew the varied meanings of America. So integrating into the center of the narrative, not as some kind of window dressing, you know, not as some kind of fashionable accessory, like it's the Met Gala, you know, and right. here comes Native history wearing a brooch or something. No, this <laughs> is the center of the narrative. These people are at the center of this history. Not only were they here before, here during, but they're still here. And that's the other thing, the tendency to resist this kind of vanishing Native narrative, right? Yeah. Which is usually how it works in U.S. history, where you, you sort of, Oh, well, you know, when the pilgrims arrive, you have the Wampanoag people. And that's the last time you ever mention the Wampanoag, you know, mm -hmm. that happens over and over and over. It's as if once the contact is made and some sort of definitive action occurs, you can safely take off that little accessory brooch, you know, and, and not yeah. have to worry about it anymore. Uh, but the fact that these people, the living descendants of these people, are still here suggests just how what, what a false conceit that is. Absolutely. No, so we're gonna we're, we are gonna move on because you're gonna talk about your own attempts to to upend the narrative. But I do want to say, you know, because you talked about the 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 response to Hannah Lehman's book has been, I, I guess mixed. There's been some critical things. Uh, Ned Blackhawk uh, we mentioned in particular. But what's to me what's important is that where there's there's criticism, where there's critical responses what we're still having is a conversation and it's a conversation that's centered on indigenous history uh, without, you know, having to be about or to, to kind of reframe things through that colonial narrative. And to me, that's the most important thing is that, you know, whether Hannah Lehman's book is, is perfect or, or, you know, the end of the story, anything like that, it's a, such an important conversation to be having um, and to see that conversation happening in, you know, the pages of the New York times, for instance, where, people who maybe aren't as, tuned, as attuned to the latest literature are seeing it um, is such an important step and, and hopefully is just one of, of the many, many steps that we still need to take to, you know, highlight and center this kind of history in our, um, in our teaching and our, in our writing. Yeah. It's a huge undertaking, you know, because that stuff gets embedded in the yes. pores. We know that we teach history. We know our students right. come in with that software already loaded, you know? Uh, and so in effect, it's a kind of uh, it's a kind of deprogramming. Isn't that what you do with people that have been in a cult? <laughs> yeah, get them in a room. <laughs> That's what it was big in the seventies. You know, a lot uh -huh. of fear about cults and deprogramming. But but in effect. That's what it is. So it's a massive undertaking. So I agree with you. When things make their way into the the mainstream corporate media or something, maybe is that an indication that it's starting to happen? It's starting uh, to happen. Good yeah. hope so. Yeah. All right, well, let's let's hear your your upending of, of history. We'll do that in the next segment. Let's do it.
So going back to the seedbed idea, it's 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 a thing that's come up, I think, a few times on on the podcast. Uh, for sharp-eyed listeners, you may have may have uh, heard us talk about it before. But but basically, the idea is that um, it, it's in some ways like a legitimizing device because it's a way of responding to this idea. Well, you know, the, that the original, the, the quote unquote, the founders created this system in which slavery was uh, was built into the system. Right? It was it was in the Constitution, all that kind of stuff. And so the rejoinder then becomes, well, yes, there may have been problems of the founding, but what they had done is planted the seeds of liberty, which would later sprout over the course of American history, um, which is a, a fundamentally unserious idea, to be clear. And so the, the, the episode title is a, is a play on that, that yes, maybe they planted some seeds, but the seeds were planted in toxic soil. And what they uh, what they grew up into is not necessarily, you know, these... I don't know, bushes of, of liberty, what, what you, the fruits of liberty. Um, thorn, thorn bushes. Yeah, thorn bushes. But but what they actually grew up into is is many of the problems that we still still experience today. And, you know, if you want to make the case that, you know, Thomas Jefferson was planting seeds of liberty, I guess that's your right to do so. But you could much more easily argue, I think, that he was planting seeds that grew up into, you know, scientific racism and and white supremacy and, and you know, all these things that still uh, vex our contemporary society. Um, and so what, what you want to do here, and I, I, I'm really excited to hear you talk about this, is, is get us to think about maybe this idea of liberty a different way and get us to think about the sources of liberty. Or the, when I say source, I mean, you know, the people who are articulating ideas of liberty to look for different kinds of people to articulate liberty than our traditional quote unquote founding fathers. And to do that, you want to go back to a, a, a different time and a different place to tell mm -hmm. that story. Yeah, absolutely. And and to reimagine, you know, the narrative as a result. Um, look, it, this this idea, the seabed of liberty, is very popular in U.S. history because it reinforces a couple of things. One being this idea of American exceptionalism, right? Yeah. That if we if we imagine liberty, you know, as coming from the pen of Thomas Jefferson, to name one uh, sort of well known, you know, exemplar of this. Uh, the author of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, if we imagine liberty coming from Jefferson's pen, then we can say that what happened in the American Revolution and, and even um, the writing of the Constitution was a kind of miracle of creation, you know, something that had never existed before. Let me give you just a quick quote here from one of the uh, expositors of this view, a well-known historian, Gordon Wood, who we've, uh, I think we've roughed him up a few times, haven't we, Josh? He's one of our, yeah, he's on our yeah. Mount Rushmore of, of History Against the Grain Enemies. Professor Wood, who was a, a Harvard PhD, longtime Brown University professor, part of that consensus school of history I've talked about in other episodes. Uh, professor Wood's book, 1991, called The Radicalism of the American Revolution, which won a Pulitzer Prize, by the way. Must be good then. Right had this to say. He said, Americans were not born free and democratic in any modern sense. They became so, and largely as a consequence of the American Revolution. So I think that's a fairly clear claim, isn't it? That, that what democracy and freedom are the direct uh, product of, uh, historical product of the American Revolution, by which he means uh, the leak, because his history focuses on the leaders, the political elites, the sort of in intellectual 
uh, fathers, if you will, and it's often, you know, it's couched in those filial pietistic terms of founding fathers, that, that it's from them a kind of miracle of creation happened called democracy and liberty. Uh, would you, is that, would you say that's an accurate framing of that traditional view? Yeah, I mean, he's very, very clear. I will say that for him. I, I always try to get my students when they write essays to make a clear statement of their <laughs> argument like that. So he, he did that. Um, you know, now now let's try to back it up. But yeah, he, he made the statement. Um, I think you're going to I think you're going to maybe push back against that statement a little bit. That's my yeah. guess. Yeah, thank you. I, I will, because I want to suggest that it also uh, it really it kind of amounts to a certain brainwashing. Mm -hmm. I mean, who do we require take? The U.S. History Survey. Well, school children, yeah. right? Uh, typically these days, I think you get you know a smattering of history, maybe state histories in elementary school. Uh, in California, at least sixth grade, you get a little bit of world history. But then in eighth grade, you get the first half of the U.S. History Survey, and then uh, in eleventh grade, the junior year, you get the second half. But then, as if that's not enough, what do you what do you face with as soon as you get to either community college or a four year school? You got to take U.S. history again. You got to take it again, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it, it it strikes me that the way this sets up, you know, was not accidental, right? It was it was a kind of catechism that was meant to be learned, you know, al almost like one would learn, you know, say biblical stories or something in religious instruction, mm -hmm. uh, a kind of uh, civic gospel of U.S. history that was to be you know, inculcated into um, school-aged children and then later college students. Uh, and the reason for that, uh, for the, the those who were the architects of the first U.S. history stories, you know, was to assimilate not only, you know, say immigrant children and what was to be now the correct story of the United States and who they were expected, therefore, to, to become, but then also in the vein of the sovereignty trap, because most of this this history, the U.S. history, and still, I would argue, even today, if you take a peek at you know the way textbooks are arranged and such, and even curriculum course outlines, uh, that most of what you end up talking about is formal systems of governing. You know that is power. Mm -hmm. You know things, the U.S. government, and in conjunction with the government, leading economic interests have done over time to expand and grow and deepen the, the investments of the nation. Um, and even when you get, as we did in the 80s, you know, under the rubric of multiculturalism, you get uh, other stories being added of non-Anglo and non-white people. Uh, those stories are often used to um, serve as, as what? As, you know, proof of the essential rightness of 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 the U.S. national narrative. In other words, if we get Rosa Parks, you know, added to the story of America in the 20th century, it's uh, to show what Josh that that there had been a 300 year reign of of racial caste and slavery <laughs> and abuse. No, what what's Miss Parks going to illustrate typically in the narrative? It's that it's I mean that she's one of those those fruits of the tree of liberty or whatever <laughs> metaphor we're using, right? right? That this, this yeah. is the culmination of all these, these seeds. Um, that, yeah, I've been using this, this term that, you know, that these attempts to kind of fix our history, you know, through things like multiculturalism, which let me be clear, I'm not against multiculturalism, but the way it's, it's been practiced in history, it's, 
they're they're constantly it, you know the attempt is really to graft a new history on the old history when i think what you want to will get at and what we've talked about is you can't just graft a better history on a on a fundamentally flawed history you have to just start over at a certain point um and that kind of you know attempt to just you know find these non-white figures to put them into our history books in often um you know a little a little cut out the you know outside the main text mm-hmm. is just never going to be enough to 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 transform the way that uh, students learn this history yeah because if nothing else it ends up being a kind of uh you know humble bragging or something you know it's like well <laughs> gosh you know we made our share of mistakes but look we got rosa parks here to show ultimately how we were right all along you know um and 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 what gets lost among other things is just how radical rosa parks was not not only in the famous moment of montgomery in 1955 when she refused to give up her bus seat everybody knows that story right or mm-hmm. at least knows the semblance of it you know it was a kind of fable Right. And that's what these these surveys do, by the way. They they sort of fabulize the story, you know, as yeah. you, you get these simple morality tales, you know, um, kind of mythologized even. But what you don't get is what Rosa Parks did the rest of her life. I mean, she moved to Detroit, you know, left mm-hmm. the South entirely, moved to Detroit, and was involved with all kinds of, you know, sort of what we call these days black power causes in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. And because she was long lived, you know, I think she lived well in her 80s, didn't she? Is that, uh, you know, that radical element to her politics never gets in the story. And we've talked about that before with somebody like Martin Luther King, too, yeah, right? Yeah. It's what you create the kind of avuncular figure or something, you know, put them on a monument. Uh, yeah, well, that's when the story becomes, um, you know, watered down and sort of made safe for the fable. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, th- oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. I think I think the other thing, and just to kind of link it to what we were talking before, it, it also kind of fits into this this kind of disappearing contributionism kind of thing. You know, like indigenous people exist in in U.S. history until then they don't have to exist. Like they show up just to disappear in in the story, and that's that's the case with someone like Rosa Parks, who's she shows up on the bus, and then once that's over, then we don't have to explore her any longer, right? So it, it just ends up being. And 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 if we want to do this even bigger, I mean that's our whole one of our whole problems with the the Western Civ notion is the way Western Civ you know uses non-European societies and civilizations and, and stories just so they can disappear them to get to the real story, which is ultimately a story of you know white Europeans leading the world through progress and and, and liberty. So it it it's this kind of microcosm macrocosm thing that you know just shows up a, a, across. The way we think about and teach and teach history in, in so many cases, which is that even when we include people who don't generally get included, it's just so we can mention them and then disappear them again when um, when their story is no longer relevant to the, to the broader argument, which is, again, that argument of progress and freedom and march of of liberty and all that sort of thing. Oh, man. Yeah, that that's a really important point to make. It's almost like we craft these celebrity profiles, you know, <laughs> they're, they're close up, you know, on the historical stage and contour them the way they needed to be, you know, to support the narrative or something. But uh, all right. So here's yeah, absolutely. Here's what I want to do is I want to go back and put some flesh and blood on this thing. This is part of a chapter uh, I've been writing uh, lately in a in a in a book project that I undertook. Uh, to talk about the story we tell ourselves uh, of who who we are and where we come from. I've been focusing on the American Revolution because it's the revolution that often is depicted in the standard version history, 
you know, is this moment of creation, mm -hmm. right? Because before that, you know, you had English colonies, right? And then afterwards, you have an independent sovereign states and ultimately a nation state called the United States of America. And so, um, you know, the basic idea at the time was that you therefore needed a new story. You couldn't keep telling the story of English people, you know, because uh, the, the, you know, the American people now, as they were identified, no longer considered themselves to be English, uh, except in uh, perhaps their ancestry or something. Right. Uh, as we'll see that even that's problematic, but okay, never mind. So you get the new American story, um, what eventually congeals into uh, what I call the SVH or standard version history over the course of the 19th century uh, down to our own time. And uh, one of the things that happens here with these surveys, these narratives, these broad narratives, the big picture stories of who we are and where we come from, is, as I was saying a minute ago, it's almost a kind of brainwashing that happens. Because once you learn the story as a child, you can't unring the bell. It's very difficult. You know, yeah. I mean, you think of, think of the way we look at our own childhood and the story you tell about yourself, Josh, you know, growing up uh, in the context of your family and the place where you lived and the, the, the events, the people, the things that you knew. I mean, certain stories become ingrained. And that's why we have to go to what? We have to go to therapy, right? <laughs> <laughs> eventually is to untangle those stories about who we are, mm -hmm. you know, because to some extent we might find ourselves being, you know, dogged by false narratives. And it's like, Hey, this isn't really who I want to be. Why do I keep acting this way? You know, something like that. Uh, so think of this as, you know, is, is what good therapists do. You know, we lay the patient on the, on the, you know, on the therapist bench, you, you know, and, and we start with what you remember, who, you know, who do you see yourself being? Uh, and the point of it is what, right? The point, the point of it is to create a healthier understanding. Right. You know, outside that narrative, right, of, of who you were supposed to be, uh, as opposed to who you really are and who you aspire to be, let's say. All right. Well, okay. So that's what I would say the U.S. History Survey does, you know, is it sort of puts on us this story that in the end, you know, it doesn't really help us very much. It doesn't explain anything very well, you know, because it's really a fable that was crafted for very specific interests, you know. Right. Nothing so much like a conspiracy. It's not necessary. I mean, all of this was, you know, the evidence is all there, okay? So I want to say this isn't like join me, you know, on, uh, you know, Infowars or something. You know, <laughs> It's not that. It's, it's hidden in plain sight all the time, you know. So, okay. Yeah, so America's Revolution... Then in the uh, SVH or standard version, it takes its meaning from a, a bordered, we call a bordered understanding of history, where the cause of the 13 colonies, and even that is a kind of trope, 13 colonies, is reimagined as the cause of all mankind. Uh, in the face of English critics, for example, who decried the independence movement as criminal and treasonous, uh, patriot leaders claimed their cause was aligned with the laws governing the universe. And in their writings and speeches, I'm talking about people like a Thomas Jefferson, right? I'm talking about elite political elites, mm. appealed to the natural rights, the natural rights that all men possess. Many of them, like Benjamin Franklin, another revolutionary um, leader and founding father, co-opted, even went so far, Josh, as to claim slavery. That, that is, they were fighting themselves against slavery and thus the cause of, of fighting slavery into what was essentially a white freedom struggle where white revolutionaries declared they were fighting against their own enslavement. 
That was even as many of them lived and pro prospered as actual enslavers of people. In other words, the slavery they were, they were fighting was a kind of British tyranny, mm -hmm. um, famously over something like taxation. And to submit to that uh, in their, you know, their rhetoric was to submit to, to slavery. So there's no shortage of, of irony, right? You know, because uh, as I say, actual chattel slavery existed. Shorn of its patriotic, uh, we might call it patriotic bunting, the American Revolution story depicted in the SVH appears to be a more limited and even at times parochial event. In other words, if we look at it slightly differently, generated by mostly local concerns over taxation, centered on a declaration of secession from England, and then followed by an anti-imperial defensive war fought on home ground, mostly on behalf of white settlers. That's not how we typically look at it. We typically look at it in no, it is not. Yeah. rhetorical terms of a universal battle you know, for liberty and human rights, something like that, right? But if you strip away that patriotic bunting, yeah, it looks like what? It looks like a settler war of secession, basically. Right. Like, I haven't used this term, uh, particularist universalism, like these very particular interests gets universalized. And it's, it's right. such a, a symptom of just, you know, enlightenment thinking in, in, in general. But maybe that's it. The American Revolution might be one of the most pure versions of that particularism, which mm -hmm. is expressed in universal terms, because it is such kind of specific almost mundane issues of a relationship between you know co-countrymen in some ways right or at least cousins yeah. right yeah. like an internecine like dispute that you might have over thanksgiving dinner but it gets turned into this world historical you know uh story of of first tyranny and then and then liberty but it doesn't hold up very very well to scrutiny as i i, I think you're you're saying that that story does not hold up very well as a truly universalist tale yeah, if you want to get into the you know the 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 granular <laughs> you know, the detail, who said what, who did what, that kind of stuff, um, you pretty quickly leave that that kind of exalted fable and find a much grittier reality. Okay, now mm. I have to think that's a good thing, but yeah, yeah. you know people people whose job it is to defend fables don't necessarily think that, do they? They don't necessarily want a messier, contradictory story. <laughs> That doesn't work as well in the catechism, you know. You know? Yeah. Um, look, but they had reasons, and 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 it's often we were laughing earlier. You know, some of the if somebody actually drags it to the party, you know, and and screws up the party by saying, "Oh, look, here's slavery," you know, uh, celebrate, you know, the celebrations going on, and some smart aleck, you know, brings up something like that, like you know, at the Thanksgiving, uh, you know, dinner table. It's like you're not supposed to mention that, you know. Mm -hmm. It's. Uh, we sometimes give them away out. We give the founding fathers, as we call them, away out. We say, "Well, they were just men of their times. What do you expect? You can't, you know, you can't uh, use our current values about things like uh, civil rights or something, you know, and hold them accountable because they're, you know, slavery was normal. It was, uh, it was a natural thing in those days, and nobody, you know, and it's like, well, that's that's all not true, <laughs> okay? Right. Uh, because these were very sharp dealers. These were smart guys. They're very aware of their, you know, their interests, and if they were men of their times, then their times were complicated, you know, and so they they had to make deliberate efforts. So, you know, they were nervous, for example, this universal particular as I, I like, because they wanted the universal, they wanted legitimacy. They wanted to say their cause was the cause of mankind, which would get them off though for being what? Some third rate, you know, uh, insurrectionists or something, <laughs> right? You know, who would have been uh, quickly drawn and quartered or shoved into the Tower of London or something. 
so they they had to cast their net. I I don't blame them for doing it, you know. Uh, but they were nervous, weren't they? Because you know they had a five hundred thousand enslaved people in their ranks, you know, living in the colonies. Five hundred thousand enslaved people. Uh, they were nervous about thinking that somehow what those people were going to assume an equal share in their freedom cause. Mm-hmm. So the pra- the practical focus of these patriots was not so much universal freedom. They couldn't risk that, you know, unless they have what you know. A slave uprising of of a you know a different order and magnitude, which by the way is going to happen in Haiti, right? You know, what we call Haiti now, right? Yep. Santo Domingo. This so this is not just paranoia, right? It's not just slave owner paranoia. It was a reality that there could be a kind of uh, uprising of enslaved people using the same rhetoric for liberty that they were spinning. So yeah, they they had to tame that. They had to. The, you know, kind of carefully contour their claims of liberty in practice, lest they risk that sort of thing to create a rather, as I say, a more tamer, more conservative objective for the revolution, which, you know, as it turns out, was mostly just a transfer of sovereignty from the metropole to North America. And by that means to preserve local self-government for whom? For whites. Uh, There could be no particular commitment to broadening or making that sovereignty all-inclusive, despite universalizing ideals or advocate anything other than white settler sovereignty. So, okay. Uh, so that's, that's how, it, you know, it was going down. Uh, and that's how the fabled version of it, you know, then takes that issue of legitimacy and casts it in the frame of American exceptionalism as a universal struggle for human rights and all mankind. And then often used by the way, you know, by the Gordon Woods of the world, you know, to suggest that all the subsequent things in world history and we're going to talk about this in a, in a bit, you know, the freedom movements, in other words, in, in, in history of the fall, they're all somehow all owing to what? To that. <laughs> they're they're plucking the fruits from those seeds yeah. that had, had grown up now, right? That vineyard? <laughs> yeah. I've got to get this metaphor down. I'm, I'm all over the place, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that the, the, the seed of liberty grew into a vineyard of global freedom movements. There we go. Yeah, that's a nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, pat ourselves on the back there. Uh, despite these carefully bordered concerns for white sovereignty uh, on the part of, you know, founding fathers and such who were nervous about, you know, making it too inclusive, <laughs> um, a genuine war for freedom was long ongoing by the time of colonial independence uh, being declared in 1776. Uh, there, There is a freedom fight going on, Josh. It's just not limited to or exclusive to the pen of Thomas Jefferson, okay, or Paul mm. Revere or somebody. As we've seen, it centered not on the governing elites and the formal sphere of sovereignty, because we've talked a bit about this before, but from whom? But the self-sovereignty, what I call the self-sovereignty of the enslaved to free themselves from enslavement. In other words, you want to find a freedom struggle going on, I got one for you. And if there was anything like a formal expression of that la- that radical and egalitarian vision of freedom and self-sovereignty that enslaved people made manifest, it came not from the refined pens of Enlightenment figures like Thomas Jefferson, nor was it born from the sovereignty documents of the American Revolution they authored. It was born instead from what I'll call an alchemy of global and Atlantic world influences that predated the American Revolution and circulated well beyond the borders of the 13 colonies. And at least one instance, 
One granular contextual example found powerful expression in the extraordinary life of a self-proclaimed common sailor by the name of Benjamin Lay. Now, let me hasten to add here that most people probably don't know or haven't heard much about Benjamin Lay or some of the others I'm going to talk about here. But rather than that being an example of somehow the great gaps in your learning, I would suggest what it really represents is the kind of beguiling effect of the fable, you know, of the SVH narrative with the handpicked celebrities that you have heard of. Mm -hmm. Because Benjamin Lay was a guy who in his own time was quite well known, okay, uh, for reasons we'll talk about in a minute. The fact that he wasn't included in that kind of celebrity profile you know, that you were talking about in the in the larger fable version of the SVH. It's not a, it's not a coincidence, is it? It's not, as we're going to see, he didn't, he didn't fit the narrative, you know? Right. Uh, so he wasn't selected. And this is what reminds us that the story we somehow naturally assume is just history, plain and simple, isn't history, plain and simple. It's a story that was created with very select, figures and moments, you know, that go into making up the narrative. Uh, and I say that because, you know, we both have talked, you know, in the past, whenever you get around to suggesting a new narrative, they're going to accuse you of what? Revisionism. revisionism. Yeah. Yeah. Some, you know, pejorative thing like revisionism. Um, but this was already storyfied. In other words, we're, we're talking, <laughs> you know, th this wasn't manna from heaven. You know, no stories write themselves, right? They're constructs. Yep. So this was already. The, so what we're suggesting is just a better story than the one that was already storyfied, you know, yep. uh, the right. one that was already cooked up. And in that story, we're going to get somebody like Benjamin Lay, who's going to be just as well known, I would argue, in a certain vein as, say, Thomas Jefferson. Because what I want to suggest here today is that what Benjamin Lay was about had a lot more to do with that more radical, more inclusive, and truly universal sense of freedom than whatever the founding fathers were talking, not at the level of rhetoric, because they did claim universal um, legitimacy, but at mm. the level of what? We, we are concerned here, not with what just came out of Thomas Jefferson's pen, but what he was actually then doing yeah. as an enslaver. Right. Both as it's a kind of governing elite and as a private person at, at Monticello, right? Yep. As Which, if you take the rhetoric and say, well, that's enough. That's the end of the story. Well, I mean, that, that goes back to why the, the seed delivery becomes so important, because if that's the version of the story you're telling, then you can then wash away the, the reality of Jefferson as a slaveholder or the, you know, other major figures and their own connections to slavery. Because, yeah, well, they were flawed as individuals. Their ideas have lived on, and that's what's most important about them. But you know, that's perspective that only makes sense. I mean, it barely makes, it doesn't make sense at all in, in many ways, but can only make sense to, to those living hundreds of years after the moment, because at the moment, nobody cares if you're an enslaved person, you don't care that Jefferson spoke some words that, you know, mm -hmm. kind of pointed towards the idea of freedom and liberty. If you're, especially if you're enslaved by him, like that's mm -hmm. as worthless as can, can be imagined. Um, and so this is just another way that, um, you know, the seedbed idea is used as cover for the reality, which is the actions matter more than the words in almost every single case, just as much for Jefferson as, as for anybody else. Right, exactly. And unless we misattribute something, you know, look, it's not even necessary for me to somehow harangue, uh, you know, Jefferson and Franklin, these guys as, 
as hypocrites. I think I think mm. I think there was definitely a depth of hypocrisy. I think they acknowledge that on many occasions. Yeah. Um, but it's not even necessary. I'm not I'm not so interested in psychologizing for the sake of prosecuting these people. You know, as I am, it's just making the story bigger. I'm I'm willing to say that Jefferson and Franklin were part of the freedom story, but they had a very specific, very narrow interest in the story, didn't they? Whereas yeah. what we tend to think of when we tend to think of the freedom story is more universal, is more inclusive. Uh, that is not that is not the part they play. Okay. okay. They were a separate channel, we might say, you know, mm -hmm. in it. But they're but they're given main stage exposure in the telling of the SVH and it makes it seem therefore like it's all it's very reductionist right it's all reducible to what came out of Jefferson's pen or something right nowhere on the big main stage production of the SVH that is the stories that usually did ben Benjamin Lay ever find a spotlight and though he enjoyed wide renown in his own day that is the decades before the American Revolution keeping in mind that the SVH was really composed after the revolution as kind of convenient timeline his name was mostly forgotten in that later story what i call the designer memories you know of the, of the u.s yet if we were looking for a place to join the revolutionary freedom story in progress decades ahead of the american revolution josh and to identify a revolutionary freedom template one broad enough and radical enough to include the self-sovereignty and freedom aspirations of enslaved black lives then we'll do to recall benjamin lay more so than the famous founding fathers say, who shine in the SVH spotlight, it was Benjamin Lay who gave clearest meaning to freedom defined by the immediate and entire abolition of slavery. Mm -hmm. Unlike the carefully tailored freedom commitment of founding fathers who found plenty of room to maintain and expand slavery, Lay's freedom vision encompassed the lives and hopes of enslaved people. And over the course of his long life, Benjamin Lay personally and very publicly preached a freedom prescription that offered no taming, no disconnect between the freedom that enslaved people sought and the freedom that he advocated. Though he was long forgotten, admittedly, to the SVH, Lay was no obscure person in his day, and modern historians have recovered his connections to the people and places that ultimately informed the American Revolution in full. And that's really what I'm talking about here, Josh, is when we tell the story, let's tell the, the story of the American Revolution in full, not that narrow channel, not that parochial interest, you know, of, of, of one class of elites. Let's acknowledge the whole of what was going on, including outside the 13 colonies, right, yep. in a more global stage, so you get you lose that kind of parochial, you know, geographic thing, uh, but also um, in this case, decades, decades before. And this, by the way, this is not just one of these reductio ad absurdums where you can always find one earlier example of something. Right, We're right, talking right. about a main current of something decades before, say, the Declaration of Independence, which it's worth reminding. You know, Jefferson later acknowledged that when he wrote the Declaration. In his words, he wasn't giving voice to something new or unique or creative. He was synthesizing ideas that were already available. So even Jefferson, that's why I say, if we just pay attention to what these guys actually said, as opposed to the fable version, they, they pretty much acknowledge, in many cases, these things. So, you know, uh, lest we be accused of what, you know, presentism or revision or some other terrible crime. Um, don't take our word for it. Listen to what they had to say about it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
So one is tempted to say that Lay was born a radical. He was certainly an appearance radical by conventional standards, standing a little over four feet tall. He was afflicted with a condition, kyphosis, that resulted in curvature of his upper vertebra. So he was long described as a hunchback dwarf. In other words, he appeared radical, Benjamin Lay did. Right, right. You know, but he had this booming voice, right? You know, it's all these sort of study, uh, study yep. and contrast. Lay preached self-reliance, but dressed and dressed himself in homespun clothes that he sewed by hand, topped off by a broad-brimmed Quaker-style hat. Yeah, more than just his physical appearance registered in his radical identity. By the time of his birth in 1682, Lay's English home county of Essex had long been incubated uh, or had long incubated radical and revolutionary thinkers influences and ideas that culminated in the English Civil War, a series of political, ideological, and military conflicts from 1642 to 1651. Now, I hope, Josh, you don't mind me just reading from some of my script here that I've already written because it'll uh, it'll get us through the, uh, the necessary facts um, uh, quicker than if I just uh, improvise. We okay? I'll allow that? it. Yeah, I'll allow oh, it. Yeah. Okay. Judges ruling up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> occurring, occurring at a time when censorship of the press was at a low ebb, English radicals were free to inform those conflicts in unprecedented and creative ways. Now, did you have a moment in time here, Josh, when something happened that previously had been suppressed or covered over uh, due to uh, various conflicts that were happening? You had a number of new uh, dissenting groups and religious sects challenged England's political establishment and one church rule. I mean, I always think about something like the 1960s, you know, where somebody just takes the lid off something, right? You get all right, this right, radical right. expression. This happens in history, right? For a variety mm -hmm. of reasons. All right. Sporting eccentric names that were often assigned by their enemies, groups like the Levelers, Seekers, Ranters, Diggers, and the religious sect to which Benjamin Lay's family belonged, the Quakers, offered radical critiques of standard practices ranging from church governance to property holding. What they tended to have in common, what made them so radical in the eyes of their establishment foes, was a religious stance that critics sometimes called antinomian. Class, that's your word for the day, antinomian. Here was a belief in freedom of conscience, which came wrapped around a set of religious principles, including the conviction that God had endowed every individual with the capacity to speak directly God's divine law without need of priests or other churchly authorities. So look, I don't want to get into the weeds of religious history here, but it's clear enough, right? The, the idea that antinomianism held was that, you know, that kind of priesthood of all believers thing, that every individual had the divine light, the spirit, uh, and could express directly God's intention, God's law, Mm -hmm. I mean, this was really subversive, right? Yeah. yeah absolutely. I mean, that's the, the funny thing is, like, that's a key tenet of early Islam as well, is, right? That as opposed to the religious doctrines of, of that moment, you know, in that kind of West Asian Mediterranean that, you know, Muslims were going to have the, the power to create their own relationship with God. Um, so, you know, that it's not like that that idea that that kind of openness antinomianism is that what it's called yeah, i it's forgot funny. my i forgot my uh book word for the day already right um well, but it's, it, it's interesting it does show up like here and there historically where you you get these movements that are specifically about you know elevating the voice of of individual believers mm -hmm. um outside you know with, within systems where where that voice was often um supposed to be constrained so um you know it's cool to see that that kind of thing show up and, and pop up 
here and there across yeah. time and across space and in, in, in history. Oh, and that's a great point. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to somehow limit this to only one place in time. I'm just trying to put some flesh and bone on this. Absolutely. No, yeah. Somebody yeah. talk about, but, but, you know, you and I were talking about how the reason you see these things, it's not entirely coincidental. I mean, you see people responding to various systems, whether it be systems of government or church government or whatever you think of the Roman Catholic church with its heavy handed Roman imperial authority, you know, mm-hmm. right from down through the hierarchy of, of archbishops and such you know, very top down, very authoritarian, you know, and so where you get systems like that in world history, you often find, as you suggest, these kind of reactions to them, you know, and this is what you're getting in England in an age when there was a kind of cultural ferment going on, when suddenly people had the opportunity, you know, among other things, we're going to get, you know, the advance of printing. So it became possible for these sort of radical thinkers to you know, sort of, you know, cobble together enough funds to print off maybe a hundred pamphlets or something yeah. that they can then, you know, carry around, you know, in their wanderings or their itinerant, you know, sort of preachings and such. And they weren't, I'm not even suggesting they were always formally religious people. Sometimes they were kind of, you know, creative hybrid of religious ideas and more traditional folk ideas, everything from magic to alchemy to, I mean, it was a much less segregated world intellectually then you know, we have a category for everything now just yes. like the American river college you know course offerings right you have you know 50 different departments and branches of knowledge or whatever but a lot of it then was much more fluid much more syncretic is the word we use kind of mm-hmm. blended. so born of this radical pedigree was a conception of freedom as universal not only did every individual possess the light of self-sovereignty, but any system that protected legal and economic privilege ultimately denied that self-sovereignty and reduced to slavery or bondage those denied the same share of privilege. And so there I want to point out where somebody like Benjamin Franklin or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson is saying that England was trying to reduce them to bondage. That is an idea drawn ex- directly from this radical tradition, although it's it's appropriated, right? Because then it's focused toward the one powerful group of people, toward another powerful group of people. In the 17th century, when these radical thinkers were talking about bondage, they were talking about it from the position of being essentially powerless and referring to powerful systems, right? And so they create this radical language, you know, of, of bondage that is later appropriated by those political elites in the colonies to apply to their own situation. But they were elites. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. In England, this meant radical critics saw the monarchy, the Church of England, and those landed elites who claimed huge tracts of property as agents of slavery. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of when Paul Ryan, remember the former Republican yeah, yeah. House Speaker, and vice presidential candidate. Yeah who, yeah, who claimed that, you know, I guess to have a relatability claim that he was a fan of Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. Remember that? <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, Tom, Tom Morello, the great, uh, you know, guitar player for Rage Against the Machine, came out and said, listen, Paul Ryan, you were the machine we were raging against. Uh-huh. You know, and that's what this reminds me of. You know, because these radicals in the 17th century included property owners, elites, landed elites, right, who had enclosed and engrossed a lot of the property in England, driving small farmers off their land. But the guys in the revolution, guys like Thomas Jefferson, they were the landed elites. <laughs> they were yeah. literal enslavers, okay? 
But these IDs are powerful, so no wonder they they co-opted them. Uh, let's see. One of my favorite characters of this tradition was a guy named Gerard uh, Winstanley. And he's going to be the leader of what comes to be known as the levelers, the levelers. Mm -hmm. And again, that, that was a kind of term of, of reproach because the idea was that you were leveling society, right? In other words, that there was God's natural hierarchy, you know, on, on this earth, you know, with, right. with the point of that hierarchy being who, who the monarch, I suppose, you know, down through the landed aristocracy, something like that. And there was, yeah, an yeah. so to be a leveler was to say there should be no distinctions. Again, very radical, right? Super, yeah. All laws that are not grounded upon equity and reason, wrote the radical leveler Gerard Winstanley, not giving a universal freedom to all, but respecting persons, ought to be cut off with the king's head. <laughs> cut off with the, they actually cut off a king's head, don't that's, they? It's wild, oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's uh, that's radical language. You know, any hierarchy he's saying should be essentially dismantled. Okay, here was the moral bedrock of a revolution in full, where insisted Winstanley quote, not one word was spoken in the beginning that one branch of mankind should rule over another. Only when what he called selfish imaginations set up one man to teach and rule over another was mankind brought into bondage and become a greater slave to such of his own kind than the beasts of the field were to him. Mm. So Winstanley is directly suggesting, and he's one of these self-called types. He was a tailor, I think, uh, by trade. So he comes out of the trades uh, in Northern England. But um, he's saying all hierarchies are invalid including hierarchies, religious hierarchies, hierarchies of wealth, hierarchies of political privilege are all invalid and all tend toward uh, bondage and slavery of those, you know, below, right? Those without power. So very radical stuff. And I'm only just touching the surface here. Um, but for a time, these ideas were, were pretty open. You know, even in the, the famous New Model Army that fought the war, the Civil War against the Royalists, that led to the, the beheading of Charles I, even within the army, you had these radical elements. You know, uh, they were called agitators. That's what they called themselves. It's basically mm -hmm. where our word for agitator comes from today, where they would deliberately set up these open debates, you know, over things like, was the monarchy valid? Was royal claims of authority valid? Private, large um, amassing of private property. I mean, you know, all this radical stuff. Uh, was openly spoken, openly debated, found their way into these publications, distributed around, you know, but, and it's all coming, and the, and the point I want to, uh, you know, again, uh, emphasize here, it's all coming from the grassroots, basically. These are not fancy people, Josh. These are not people, Gerard Winstanley didn't necessarily have, a, a you know, an Oxford education or something, right? They're often self-taught, self-called, they're literate, because they learn to read what? They learn to read the Bible. There's right. a kind of biblical literacy, you know, that the children are taught to read so they could read scripture. But, you know, that's the thing that's subversive about reading and literacy, right? You teach somebody to read about one thing, they can read about anything. Mm -hmm. Then they can write and speak as well. And that's what's happening. So born into this in 1682, into the very lap of this radical antinomian tradition of Southeastern England in the small Essex village of Copford is Benjamin Lay, a third generation Quaker. Now, just to advance the story, 
Benjamin Lay will go on to become at one point himself a merchant a merchant seaman working in the British um you know uh, merchant uh naval trade in the Atlantic world and he will live for 2 years uh on the island of Barbados which at the time was the wealthiest of the English sugar colonies along with Jamaica uh and it was also one of those places you know it was like something out of Dante's Inferno um what he called the hellish practice of slavery uh, was on display uh, every every day, and he had, he had learned about this as a, as a sailor, you know, from a, his fellow sailors, even included occasional African sailors. Um, he had learned about the slave trade's brutality, for example, heard lurid tales told of of assault, sexual assaults against female captives. So, I mean, his eyes were open you know, as a participant, in effect, in that Atlantic world commerce and trade, uh, seaborne trade, you know, uh, where he goes and he lives in Barbados. Um, a few years before uh, he arrived, uh, he and his wife actually arrived to live in Barbados, where he wanted to set up his own um, business selling dry goods. Uh, an English observer of Barbados penned a lyrical description of the island's horrors. Quote, all Sodom's sins are centered in thy heart. Death is thy look and death in every part. That was a poem by Thomas Waldick. Here was no poetical license though, Josh. Mortality informed daily life in Barbados and in the crucible of island slavery. Death came from disease, overwork, malnutrition, suicide, torture, and execution. As Vincent Brown, who we've talked about before, writes, among the sugar colonies, death weighed heavily and people's considerations, and nowhere more so than Barbados. Lay recalled how his wife Sarah, for example, traveling to a friend's house encountered a, quote, Negro, stark naked, who was suspended by chains above the ground, barely alive, an anguished soul withering under the torture and the steady loss of blood. Such shocking scenes were repeated routinely within the brutal matrix of the island's racial capitalism. It was not suffering alone, that led Lay to denounce slavery, but also the personal connections he made with enslaved people on Barbados who compelled him to, quote, preach and write for the abolition of slavery. He spoke, when Lay spoke of Black people, for example, of non-white people, he didn't condescend to use a lot of the racial, uh, popular racial epithets of the day in describing them. Uh, he spoke of differences in color, but not race, and so made no invidious comparisons of complexion. Instead, he professed a sincere desire that happiness should be the lot, quote, of all colors and nations. A favorite biblical passage of his, one that he often evoked, came from Acts 17.26, that God had, quote, made of one blood all nations of men to live uh, a dwell on the face of the earth. So here was a guy, a kind of racial egalitarian now right, in the decades before the American Revolution. I mean, already, doesn't that separate him from somebody like, oh, say, Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, what, what's occurring to me is, you know, maybe this goes back to our own profession in, in education and what you're talking about, you know, the way the, the U.S. history survey is, is taught that Benjamin Lay's own upbringing, his own sense of the, the spiritual, his own sense of, of society that was kind of, in, I don't want to say ingrained, but, but certainly he learned, you know, from birth in a group that was far more radical than, than the norm. When he goes to Barbados and sees the horrific suffering of his fellow human, he's going to experience that in a different way than maybe somebody brought up like Th Thomas Jefferson 
on a plantation, you know, surrounded by enslaved enslaved laborers, um, that that kind of position of empathy that that Benjamin Lay brings into him is not necessarily what all people are taught. And, you know, maybe speaks also to when we start teaching our our students in fourth grade about U.S. history, that the lessons we you know, I think it's what you're saying earlier, those lessons that we impart to them then at that point can have a huge impact in the way they they encounter the world from from that point on. I mean, maybe that's overstating the the significance right. in, of, of, of education, but at least there's a version of it where where the way that we kind of imprint upon, you know, children ultimately has a huge impact in the way they experience the world. And, and you know, in, in the case of Benjamin Lay, you know, his his capacity for empathy seems just to be much greater than some of his 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 peers. Um, you know, at that moment, I, I, I wondered, you know, you're suggesting that that has a lot to do with this particular moment and place that he's he's born from and this ideological um you know context in which he's also also raised yeah and it's so interesting because i mean you know um uh, it's not so easy as some kind of sociological you know typecasting right you know because he came from a certain place mm-hmm. and a certain time, therefore he was bound to be a certain way i mean look you look at somebody like benjamin franklin franklin was not born a landed elite. He was born in, you know, a, a poor candlemaker's family, too many children, not enough income. He's indentured as a kid to his older brother, breaks the indenture by famously running away mm-hmm. to Philadelphia, where he establishes himself ultimately in business and becomes successful. But Franklin also became a slave owner. Yeah. And and was not known to be an abolitionist until very late in his life. And so why would a former indentured servant you know, who experienced that kind of oppression, why would he not have more empathy? You know, why would he run fugitive slave ads in the Pennsylvania Gazette or slave sale ads in the Pennsylvania Gazette and even own a a couple of enslaved people himself? I I don't know why one, you know, I what I think depends on your position within the system or something. Benjamin Franklin versus Benjamin Lay, the difference in their stories has something to do with with the position in the system of this early sort of global capitalist system is developing. Um, they they occupy different places in that system, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's an aspirational aspect of this as well, that, you know, you can be, you know, the indentured servant of of your elder brother and, you know, in a position that seems far from, from an elite, but the aspirational quality of it, you know, you can take that position and you can say, well, therefore... Nobody should ever be in the position I'm in, or you can take that position and say, to be wealthy, to to truly make make it in this world means having my own indentured servant, my own enslaved person, you know that 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 I own. It's it's it is interesting. Was you know what is that? What is that line? What what draws one person one direction, another person another? Is right. is maybe un, un, unanswerable, but it's also really significant um, because you can have these these situations where you might think both that end up in the same place. And there's that divergence, which, you know, ends up undermining a lot of the defenses we get of, of these people as just men of their time. They couldn't possibly have done things a different way because, yeah. you know, somebody like Benjamin Lay shows us that there, there was a pretty clear other way. And yeah. And it's a very simple way it's, it's experiencing and, and witnessing, you know, human suffering at its most extreme. And instead of hiding from that, instead of justifying that confronting it and, and, you know, pushing back and resisting, resisting that. Um, and if yeah. that exists at the same time, you've got, you know, Jefferson and Franklin and, and all these other people 
doing the opposite, then that's really important to point out um, because it, it, again, pushes back so fundamentally against this notion of men of their time. Yeah, thank you for saying that because that's the point is that if we only tell that one channel, you know, you know, sort of feature that one channel story, then we we literally don't know about Benjamin Lay. And, and not only not know about Lay, but the larger stream he's coming out of. It's not like he was just a one-off. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, he he was remarkable in certain ways and distinguished himself certainly in certain ways. But there was context for him, was there not? You know? Uh, yeah. And if, yet if we don't know that, then we end up saying things like, well, we can't blame the founding fathers because, you know, nobody was saying those things. And that's obviously not true. People were saying these things. The founding fathers knew that. They often on their own said these things, even yep. if they doubled back, you know. So, look, I, I just got to do a quick thing about Lay's style to this agitator thing, you know, whereas other reformers work through established channels of formal sovereignty, such as courts and assemblies, which is really where sovereignty trap stories are more comfortable, are they not? Mm -hmm. We like hearing about people who work through legal channels and political channels, you know, and stuff like that. Well, okay. Lay embraced, we, we had a college president once who said, right, that plenty of examples of, you know, radical change occurred in history through peaceful means, by which he meant, you know, through systems of authority. Yeah. All right. Lay didn't think so. Benjamin Lay would not have agreed. Lay embraced the radical and antinomian tactics of shock and confrontation, which followed from the authority of self-sovereignty that he believed God had endowed in every individual. Look, there's a double-edged sword of this, Josh. I mean, people claiming to be authorized by God can do really awful things too, right? You know, so I, I, I'm just trying to suggest kind of where this is coming from. And it's not coming from channels of formal authority. It's coming from this sort of antinomian claim. And in this case, it manifested itself in a radical anti-slavery uh, view. Even a sect like Quakers, who were mostly free of church hierarchies and specially invested, uh, say, priestly authorities, had basic rules for fellowship. But it was precisely those rules that Lay set about breaking, like hmm. the proverbial bull in a china shop. Forgoing all deference and meekness of spirit, Lay rose in Quaker meetings and launched censorious hellfire and damnation on those who failed to follow God's laws, particularly where slavery was concerned, in other words. Because at the time, there were many wealthy Quakers who were involved in the slave trade, right? Yeah. Which is what, what he learns when he goes to Philadelphia in 1732. Some of the, you know, Penn's colony, right? Pennsylvania was mm -hmm. a great Quaker colony um, established by William Penn and and ostensibly was committed to something like religious toleration, you know. But many Quakers in Pennsylvania, the leading Quakers, I should say, were also um, deeply rooted in the business of slavery. And so this, this is shocking, you know, to, to Lay, who thought he was going to find a more sort of open, you know, kind of liberal sort of intellectual environment when he goes to Philadelphia. Not the so-called weighty men, as he called them, who trafficked in slave trading and ownership of enslaved labor, who, like him, claimed to be Quakers. As one historian puts it, Lay, quote, would prove to be a 25-year thorn in the side of the Quaker majority. Hmm. His protest tactics blended fierce moral urgency with theatrical elements. On one occasion, he publicly smashed china cups and saucers with a hammer 
while standing on the balcony of the courthouse, and another time <laughs> dashed tobacco pipes to disrupt the staid proceedings of the Quaker meetings. Both the china cups and the pipes reflected slavery's sinful presence as the blood sugar, as he called it, that sweetened tea and tobacco that filled the pipes were products of enslaved labor. It sounds kind of modern, doesn't it? A kind of product boycott? It really does. And I mean, that's this, it's such a big moment. I've, I've started to stress this more in, in my world history classes, this moment where people start becoming aware of these kind of global processes of, of production, which then lead to consumption of products that are made somewhere far away. Um, and people come to, to start understanding the moral, uh, the moral aspects of consumption in, in a way that people really never had to confront before. Yeah. Um, and most people, you know, go ahead and drink their tea and with sugar and don't think about it. And then there's people like Benjamin Lay and William Fox and other abolitionists, certainly who, who confront the reality of that, you know, that tea you're drinking is literally um, being sweetened by the lash of a overseer on a poor enslaved person's back, as I think William, William Fox says. Yeah. And, and how different then is your view when you know that that was already being advocated and agitated? It was part of the the conscious understanding, you know, of what was yeah. actually going on, as opposed to the, well, they were just men of their time. You know, yep. kind of. uh, perhaps most memorable was the protest lay stage in September of 1738, when he rose to speak at the regional yearly uh, yearly meeting of Quakers in Burlington, New Jersey. By then, Lay had developed a reputation around Philadelphia for his protest antics, and he still found an opening. Somehow, he still got into that meeting. Among those present in the Burlington Meeting House were the wealthiest and most politically influential Quaker leaders in the Philadelphia area, including several prominent enslavers. Lay had for many years railed against slave owning among Quakers, uh, hoping to tip the balance uh, against them. He now aimed to make another unforgettable impression. Dressed in a military coat, Lay announced in a loud, clear voice that God was no respecter of persons, that all were equal in heavenly sight, that slavery was the greatest sin, and thus, quote, shall God shed the blood of those who enslaved their fellow creatures. With the consummate showman's touch, he lifted a book above his head, which everybody presumed was the Bible, pulled a sword uh, that he concealed in his coat, pulled a sword out and ran the blade through the book, puncturing a bladder of berry juice he'd hidden in the book's <laughs> hollow core. <laughs> As the blood-colored juice poured from the book down his arm, lay bellowed out, thus shall God shed the blood of those persons who enslaved their fellow creatures. And needless to say, Josh, it left the crowd astonished as Lay doused the remaining blood from the book onto the enslavers seated nearby. <laughs> as the meeting fell into utter disorder, one of the enslavers targeted by Lay later observed that during the tumult, Lay himself stood quiet and motionless as a statue. It was an impeccable performance of what Lay's modern biographer calls guerrilla theater. <laughs> I like this guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's doing so, close-up magic. I love. It. I appreciate he's doing close-up magic as a form of protest. <laughs> Press the digitation. I think, yeah. Right. Uh, all right. So here's the thing. You can say, well, what difference does it make? Right. You know, uh, here was a crazy eccentric guy who did all these things, um, and and be dismissive. I say there's like three stages of gaslighting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Historical gaslighting. The first 
is to ignore. Well, it was hard to ignore Benjamin Lay. <laughs> no, but okay. The first is to ignore, which the SVH has done, ignored yeah. Benjamin. The second is to deny, okay, we'll recognize you, but we'll deny that you're, you know, who you say you were, or, you know, important or something. And then the third final refuge in the gaslighters uh, strategy is to just dismiss. Well, okay, we see you, we see what you did, but we're just not going to, you know, deal with it, right? You know? Right. And that on all of those things have happened in, in a creation of, you know, the SVH. But the interesting thing is, you know, when we go back and we look and see what people were saying at the time. So there's two Benjamins that this Benjamin Lay ends up really influencing. One is actually Benjamin Franklin, because mm -hmm. when Lay decides to print his book against slavery, who does he go to? He goes to Ben Franklin, Philadelphia's famous printer, to print the book. And and Franklin does, uh, even though he keeps his own name off the book because he didn't want to lose business among the rich Quakers, he nevertheless publishes copies of uh, Benjamin Lay's book against slavery, which is in some ways the first revolutionary abolitionist tract, you know, printed in the colonies. What year uh, is that? What's that? What when is that? What year is that? Oh, that's 1738. Okay. Yeah. So that's three decades before the American Revolution. Yeah. 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 Um, and then the other thing, uh, later in life, so they were they were actually friends, you know, he knew Ben Ben Lay really well. Later in life, Franklin's uh, after uh, Lay. Oh, I want to say it, it's after he passes as a memorial, Franklin's wife has uh, an artist do a portrait of Benjamin Lay that, that um, was hung in the Franklin home for many years. So there is a kind of tangible connection here, in other words, between what Lay was doing and ultimately the influence he's going to have on at least one founding father, Franklin, because Franklin in the 1780s, after the revolution, will be a part of the first abolition society. Uh, mm -hmm. This is 50 years after Lay, but nevertheless, he will credit Benjamin Lay. And the other Benjamin, there's a third Benjamin by all the Benjamins, is Benjamin Rush, the Philadelphia physician, also founding father, signer of the Declaration of Independence, who also knew Benjamin Lay and will write the first biography of Benjamin Lay and credit Lay with being the first revolutionary uh, abolitionist. Now, the thing that's interesting about that is... You know, Lay is going to say it's really, or excuse me, Benjamin Rush is going to say it's really what Benjamin Lay was doing that would define the true revolutionary movement ultimately against slavery. In other words, here's a founding father who's actually crediting this guy with representing a kind of strain of thought and action that would then become years after Lay's death, dec decades after Lay's death would become the kind of defining element what ultimately does become the abolitionist movement in this country, right? Um, right. Okay, so, uh, so, so you know, in answer to that question, well, what does it matter? You know, well, okay, so sometimes ideas have an afterlife, you know? Uh, Benjamin Rush called Lay a pioneer of, quote, that war which has since been carried on so successfully against the commerce and slavery of the Negroes unquote. And it was precisely that radical war for freedom, which was neither founded nor waged by the founding fathers, but mostly by the enslaved themselves and their white allies like Benjamin Lay, that defines the age of revolution in full. As a revolutionary movement, that age began in earnest during the 1730s, when the contagion of liberty inspired enslaved peoples 
around the Atlantic world to fight for their freedom, just as it then inspired Benjamin Lay to fiercely advocate for the same. Our time frame for this revolution in full must therefore expand beyond the narrow limits of 1776 to include the decades stretching from the 1730s to the early 1800s, and as a story must tell beyond the bordered narrative of the 13 colonies. For historians wedded to the sovereignty trap of storytelling, such a frame waters down the meaning of revolution to include all manner of conflict anywhere and everywhere, I suppose. But that is not how Benjamin Rush understood it. The success of Mr. Lay, he wrote in 1790, was in sowing the seeds of a principle which bids fair to produce a revolution in morals, commerce, and government in the new and in the old world. So there's a founding father. There's a signer of the Declaration, Benjamin Rush, who's essentially crediting, you know, not Thomas Jefferson, right? Mm -hmm. Not John Adams. Crediting this guy, Benjamin Lay, with in a sense, giving voice to that more radical stream of, you know, freedom agitation, <laughs> you know, the freedom ideal, both in thought and action. Um, now, here's the thing, Josh, I know I mean, we're covering a lot here, but I want to fast forward a second <laughs> within our own day. Edmund Morgan, I'm not going to pick on Gordon Wood anymore. I'm going to turn to Edmund Morgan. Edmund Morgan is one of these deans of history after World War II, U.S. history, right? Yale historian, Edmund Morgan, who does a review in 2004, I think it is, of a book by another historian, Gary Nash. And Gary Nash was known to do this kind of social history. You know, uh, he knew all about Benjamin Lay, Gary Nash did, and wrote about these kinds of people in history. And he wasn't usually received very well by the, the kind of deans of history, the Ivy League types like Edmund Morgan, who did a much more traditional sort of political elites history. Right? And he reviews, Edmund Morgan reviews Gary Nash's book in 2004. And to me, this is the crux of it. We get back to this issue of how do we tell the story? We have to ask, because, oh, I'm sorry, Gary Nash writes a book called The Unknown Revolution about the American Revolution. He talks about all these sort of off the main stage people, people like Benjamin Lay and many others, you know, enslaved people, native peoples, working class people whose names we wouldn't know, wouldn't get into the normal narrative, but who, as Nash showed, were very much involved in real time in the events of the revolution. We have to ask, uh, says Edmund Morgan then, what did the movement he describes, meaning Gary Nash, have to do with the revolution that established the independent United States? In other words, what did I say the three stages were? Denial. Uh, oh. Um, well, ignore, right? Isn't it? Ignore? It's, it's, yeah, ignore, <laughs> denial, dismiss. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So if the three stages of gaslighting, you know, are to ignore, deny, and dismiss, by the time Edmund Morgan is reviewing Gary Nash's book, which after all documents all this stuff, mm. Nash was an impeccable historian, right? I mean, he documents everything. You couldn't ignore it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't even really deny it at that point. So what are you left with? Well, here's what Edmund Morgan says. What did the movements he describes have to do with the revolution that established the independent United States? Most of them were not visibly a cause or an effect of that revolution. Would they have occurred without it? Since most of them did not succeed, do they deserve the name of revolution? They excite sympathy today, but did they change anything at the time? 
reoccurring. I hope the condescension is coming through. <laughs> yep. Recurring to the earlier claim to a redistribution of the property of the American Revolution from the few to the many, have the many received a collection of lost causes? Yeah, ignore, deny, and in the end, Edmund Morgan, just dismiss. But here's the thing, and this is where I'm going to finish this part, okay? Benjamin Rush, going back to the time. It's easy enough for Edmund Morgan, Ivy League historian, invested in the consensus history of the U.S., to sort of condescendingly dismiss this sort of history, dismiss a person like Benjamin Ray, the kind of, well, what did it, what did it amount to? Mm -hmm. But if we go back to Benjamin Rush, in his biography of Benjamin Lay, Rush wrote an extraordinary, what I think is an extraordinary answer to Edmund Morgan. I mean, look, you know, Rush lived 200 years before Edmund <laughs> Yes. See what I'm saying, right? A pre-response, pre yeah. In a conversation across time, you know, here's what Rush wrote. The success of Mr. Lay in sowing the seeds of a principle which bids fair to produce a revolution in morals, commerce, and government in the new and in the old world should teach the benefactors of mankind not to despair if they do not see the fruits of their benevolent propositions or undertakings during their lives. No one seed of truth or virtue ever perished. Wherever it may be sowed or even scattered, it will preserve and carry with it the principle of life. Some of these seeds produce their fruits in a short time, but the most valuable of them, like the venerable oak, are centuries in growing. But they are unlike the pride of the forest, as well as all other vegetable productions, in being incapable of a decay. They exist and bloom forever. <laughs> wow. What do you think? Incredible. Yeah, I mean, we we got to move on to the next section, but the, just as we're, we're joined to, to Edmund Morgan again, it's it's so infuriating when these immensely influential people like Morgan, you see this in like, you know, New York Times editorials as well, when they deign to tell us what matters and doesn't matter, and as if what matters is some objective thing um, and is not you know, the thing that historians have, the, especially somebody of, of his reputation, have the ability to promote, right? That it doesn't matter because we don't talk about it. And we don't talk about it because, or I don't talk about it because it doesn't matter, but it also doesn't matter because I refuse to, you know, mention or, or you know, allow these stories into my, into my narratives at, at all. So, you know, he's acting as if this is just the natural state of things, that of course we don't talk about this. Um, and then that very denial of, of, of you know this this vein really of, of american history this vein of of ideas um disappear because specifically edmund morgan refuses to discuss it um in any meaningful way why right. yeah exactly as if what if we don't talk about it it must not be important or something yeah. um well look uh, in a future episode here's what i'll do I'll, I'll make you this bargain okay because it doesn't end with benjamin lay or even his own personal influence on someone like a Franklin or a Benjamin Rush. Um, it's that stream of radical thought really more than the individual himself. I mean, Lay was certainly extraordinary, but it's that stream of thought, that current of ideas. We, look, we imagine great ideas come from great men, do we not? I mean, you know, in the yeah. typical sovereignty frame, yep. uh, sovereign trap frame, but great ideas don't come from great men because what happens with the, like the Declaration of Independence is essentially a kind of conservative document mm -hmm. as understood by those who crafted it. 
You know who makes the Declaration of Independence a radical document? One that, you know, as we'll see over time will come to be, you know, an influence on, on more radical popular movements for liberty and independence globally. It's it's not the, the elites who penned it. It's those who were enslaved at the time of the American Revolution or who self-emancipated, who stuck uh, struck upon, uh, you know, Jefferson's preamble about life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness on mm -hmm. all men being created, and who insisted that that was part of a radical suite of ideas that had to now be embraced. Not something that Jefferson himself ever did, right? Uh, most of the document, the Declaration, is taken up with a kind of lawyer's, you know, grievance against George III. It's that preamble that we always remember now. And it's that preamble that these more grassroots elements. So what I'm going to do in a future episode is show you how that happened, how that radical strain that Jefferson gave voice to, but then subsequently did what? Tried to tame, tried to domesticate, tried to narrow down, you know. Uh, how that more radical stream of thought, those ideas continued to be fostered outside that elite core by people uh, like Benjamin Lay, but also enslaved black people, self-emancipated uh, self people who will become the great sort of engineers of that more radical freedom going into the 19th century. And so, as you well know, in the 19th century, it's a great age of rebellion, right? Mm -hmm. The long 19th century, where you get global rebellions. And what do you find? Uh, you often find common elements, common ideas, even if not from the same self-same source, you know, um, people reacting globally in that more radical freedom current, right, to make claims against power. In some really extraordinary ways, you know, something like the Taiping Rebellion in China, a decades-long conflict. You know, we get these ideas that are all sort of a mashup, right, of these radical antinomian freedom ideas, you know, with traditional Chinese ideas from you know, folk religion and other things. In other words, every every sort of instance of it, every iteration of it has its own kind of syncretic blend and identity. But we pull back, and, and the beauty of, of doing world history, we pull back and we look at them in context as being part of the same kind of historical moment, do we not? Yeah, I mean, reactions to the same thing in different places, coming from different sources as well, but um, coming to, to, you know, similar conclusions, which is such the, you know, the beauty of, as you were saying, that kind of global approach is that um, what it does at its best is it, it reveals, you know, the fact that we all have the same brains, <laughs> um, that there there are obviously differences that are worth, worth considering, but, um, there is that global humanity, which, you know, ultimately should be the basis of, of our historical study. Um, not this person or that person or those people or that people, but humanity in that holistic sense. Um, and the more we can kind of look for and connect those stories, the more human of, uh, of a narrative or human account we can get um, out of our histories. Yeah, because among other things, these people are living in the same epoch of history. They're, in this yes. case, let's say global capitalism, imperialism, old and new. Uh, it was often they're responding to the same, you know, the same kinds of, of um, you know, what? Same, same kinds of pressures, same kinds yes. of dislocations, you know, brought mm -hmm. on by systems. And so um, if we don't tell those stories, then we imagine them coming exclusively through that kind of central sovereign 
expression, um, we deny ourselves a whole range of understandings, you know, that 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 apply in our our own time. And you're gonna we're gonna go to the next segment here, the concluding segment. You're gonna take us out today talking about how some of this stuff translated uh, in the 20th century um, based on the work you've been doing that for the textbook. Sure, let's do it. One of the things that you were you were saying there that that really struck me um, is the idea that that maybe Jefferson's own ideas of freedom and liberty were themselves reactionary. Um, I think it's a really important place to start because you know it's also kind of a rejoinder to Edmund Morgan, by the way, where he's saying lay, people like Lay don't matter because you know none of the stuff they talk about actually happened. Basically, is what he's saying. But if we imagine that somebody like Jefferson is crafting his vision of liberty um, as a reaction against you know, this more inclusive, more holistic sense of liberty of somebody like Lay or for that matter, enslaved people, um, then then it really does show the impact of, of these ideas that it forces somebody like Jefferson to craft his own ideas, um, again, in reaction to, in opposition to um, those sorts of, again, broad-based uh, ideas of, of true liberty. And that that get kind of pushed us forward. We can go forward with that kind of idea and get to this moment in history, um, 1918-1919, when World War One has come to an end. And the question now becomes, okay, so what is going to be the structure of, of the world order now that it's all fallen apart, you know, after 1914? And, you know, as people probably know, that this is this, this moment in which the American President Woodrow Wilson kind of arrives on, a national, on an international stage. And in some ways, it's the first time an American politician has ever had that kind of um, international celebration, we'll just say. He shows up in Europe and he's, you know, greeted by these rapturous crowds everywhere. And, you know, all the traditional statesmen in Europe are kind of looking askance at this, you know, this provincial uh, who has all these, you know, these crazy ideas. And and the idea that that comes to have probably the most salience, we'll, we'll say, um, amongst you know, both the peoples of Europe who have been fighting this war for years, but also, and I, I would say more more importantly, colonized and semi-colonized people around the world is this notion of self-determination, um, which seems to suggest what? That, you know, the idea of self-determination. Just taking the word at its face. Yeah, the concept of Yeah, face. no, I mean, it was basic sense that people get to determine the laws and, and systems that they live under. Absolutely. And that's, that's the, the way that that's interpreted, that self-determination means... You know, that people have the right to, uh, you know, convene their own governments, basically, that they'll have their voice will matter in the type of of system that they're governed. Under. And of course, if you're Vietnamese, if you're Indian, if you're Algerian, if you're any number of, of other people around the world, if you're Chinese, for that matter, in a slightly different context, your assumption is that here's this guy, Wilson, who now speaks for us because he wants us to have, um, you know, self-determination. But, you know, in a similar way that we can talk about uh, Jefferson's version of liberty as being uh, reactionary or counter-revolutionary. Um, I think it's important to understand Wilson himself and his version of self-determination as similarly reactionary or counter-revolutionary because, of course, 1918, 1919 is just a couple of years after the Russian Revolution. 
which has brought to power this Bolshevik government. And, you know, without obviously acknowledging, uh, we can, of course, acknowledge what's going to happen with the Russian Revolution and some of the horrors that are going to emerge, particularly once we get to Stalin. But it's also really significant to get across just how, on the one hand, influential um, the revolution was, how um, particularly colonized people, or or again, I'll just say particularly because that's what I'm interested in, um, how people hung on the words of, of Lenin. Um, and Lenin, you know, for someone like, like Ho Chi Minh, was the moment where he kind of embraced communism. And he said, you know, when he read Lenin's uh, theses on the colonial question, you know, that was the first time he'd ever heard anybody, particularly any European, even speak to the interest of of the colonized. And so whatever his his views were at that moment, he knew he was going to he was going to be a communist because, you know, in his mind, this is the one guy who's speaking to my interest. And it turns out that Lenin had actually um, articulated his own version of self-determination about a year before um, Wilson articulated his. And that makes it very possible to understand that uh, when Wilson talked of self-determination, he was specifically doing it to counter this Leninist version of self-determination, which in you know in the Lenin version truly would mean colonized people would have the right to uh, determine their own manner of governance. And early on, at least, this this does go away. You know, the the Bolshevik government will, for instance, um, return all their uh, their territories in China. There's all these you know grants of land and uh, economic. Um, uh, uh, sovereignty that was given to the various European powers in China. And the Bolsheviks said, no, no, we're not going to claim those any longer. You can have the railroad rights back. You can have these territories in Manchuria back. And then they they also end up pretending like they never said that. But anyway, there is this moment where it really seems like the Bolsheviks represent, you know, this this new path. Um, and it's a very, uh, for, for maybe obvious reasons, it's a very... Um, um, beguiling path for, for a lot of people. So when we think of Wilson making these 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 pans to um, self-determination, it's very possible to say, well, he's doing that specifically because he's trying to counter this Leninist version of self-determination. Um, and I think it's really important because if we think about who Wilson is, um, you know, there's the version of him where he's, you know, Wilsonian foreign policy and all this kind of stuff. His reputation is not what it once was, certainly. But he is for a long time going to be, you know, this kind of, again, paragon of a particular view of the global world order and global diplomacy and this, this sort of thing. But but there's another side of Wilson that I think um, needs to be noted. And, and so what do we know about, about Wilson other than his uh, diplomatic uh, activities, we'll just say? <laughs> well, Woodrow Wilson, though seen as aggressive in his political life. Yeah. Um, was a child of the South. He was a son mm -hmm. of Virginia, uh, born just before the Civil War and uh, said to have remembered as a child uh, Confederate troops marching through the streets. His father uh, was a longtime Presbyterian minister and a starch defender of the Confederacy. In fact, Wilson's father wrote a, a tome um, defending slavery uh, a yeah. pro-slavery tome. And um, and so, you know, you take the boy out of the South, but you never try to take the South out of the boy, right? I mean, you know, during even his presidency, he showed that same tendency toward what was then, you know, becoming entrenched as Jim Crow in the country. Um, he fired federal workers, Black federal workers from the government. Um, famously, 
he held a screening for the D.W. Griffith epic film, Birth of a Nation, which was based on a story, The Klansman, um, that told of, of how the redeeming element of the South were the Ku Klux Klan who saved, uh, you know, Southern virtue from the, uh, you know, the evil attacks of uh, crazed former slaves and all that kind of stuff. Um, he said it was history writ in lightning, you know, birth of a nation. So, yeah, th this was a guy who was very wedded to those, what should we call them, traditional white racial norms of the, of the South. Yeah. And, you know, in the same way that it, it's kind of absurd on, on his face to be like, OK, the slaveholder Thomas Jefferson is going to write a document which is actually opposed to slavery. Right. If, mm -hmm. if you just you know say it that way, the idea that when he says all men are created equal, he actually meant all men are created equal seems completely farcical. And to the, to the same extent, the idea that this supremely racist uh, Woodrow Wilson would ever, you know, talk about self-determination and mean by that, that all people across the world of all different races and ethnicities and situations should have self-determination is also on its face ridiculous. Wilson um, was going to have a partner, an ally, when he comes to, to Paris for the Paris Peace Conference, and that would be the uh, president of South Africa, um, or the prime minister, I guess, of South Africa, this guy named uh, Jan Smuts. Good South African name right there. Yeah, the prime minister of South Africa, Africa, John Smuts, who um, found a, uh, um, a, a a good bedfellow, we'll say, with, with Wilson. Is that maybe the way to put it? That they kindred, seem to get along swimmingly spirit. for some reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a kindred spirit. Yeah. Kindred spirits. There, there you go. Jan Smuts, by the way, um, famously, I don't know if famously, but he, he publicly at least, just a few years before World War One, was went up in, in front of the legislature in South Africa and declared in a public speech the vital need to preserve white supremacy on this planet. Jefferson, at least privately, was known to express similar sentiments. And so when they came together um, at, you know, in, in Paris, it was pretty clear to both that whatever self-determination meant, it was not going to be this kind of universalist version of self-determination. Of course, you know, the notion of the consent of the governed was supposed to be the most important thing was, was you know, central for both their versions of, of self-determination, but very, very clearly, um, consent of the government was not uh, seen as uh, appropriate, we'll just say, for what they called, quote unquote, racially backward peoples who were unsuited for democracy. So we end up with this, this, this moment, which kind of, in many ways, replicates that, that moment in early American history as well, where there's this, this time where you could really imagine um, a different path in which there truly is a reimagination of what the world can be, what kind of society we can build. But instead, um, we get these reactionaries, um, racial reactionaries, um, in the case of Jefferson and Smuts and Wilson himself, who instead take that moment to um, fundamentally imprint their ver visions of the world, their visions of, you know, natural inequality onto the system's that they create. Now, uh, famously, uh, when the various world leaders come together to negotiate the, you know, what becomes the Treaty of Versailles, colonized people begin showing up um, in Paris and then later Versailles as well. Because, you know, again, as I was suggesting, they see Wilson as, you know, this great voice for their interest. And so uh, Ho Chi Minh, I think we maybe have told this story before, but Ho Chi Minh, uh, 
the the future Vietnamese revolutionary leader is going to rent a suit like this is he's got no money, but he's going to spend his little the little funds he has to rent a nice suit and to go to try to present Woodrow Wilson with his Declaration of Independence for Vietnam, which is going to be, you know, directly modeled on that of 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 Thomas Jefferson. And yeah, one way well, to look at this, reminding yeah. everybody that Vietnam at that time, Indochina, French Indochina, yeah. was a colony under the yes. French. Yes. So here he is in, in Paris, in effect, confronting uh, the colonial power, right? Yes. And, and seeing and seeing Wilson as his, his ally in that, right? Which is, again, you know, from, from our perspective now, understanding who Wilson was seems absurd. But for, for people at this moment, you know, in the same way that, that Ho Chi Minh would, would be entranced by, the, by Lenin, you know, about a year after this or so, um, when Wilson talked about self-determination, that was something they had been hearing from you know, French politicians, from English politicians, from German politicians, for that for that matter. And so, you know, it did raise in them this hope that they finally had a voice. And it wasn't just, you know, another colonized person, but it was among the most powerful people in the entire world who was on their side. And of course, you know, Wilson has no interest in being with Ho Chi Minh. There's no chance that was ever going to happen. And he ends up, like many who come to Paris and Versailles from the, the colonized world, ends up disappointed and in, in many ways, for a lot of them, completely disenchanted with uh, that European-led world order. And that's going to lead to other outcomes. Maybe we can talk about in a future episode. But, um, but, but you know, another way of, of interpreting, um, you know, the idea of that Ho Chi Minh creates this Declaration of Independence for Vietnam uh, based on Thomas Jefferson is that this can be, you know, one piece of evidence for that seeds of liberty idea. That see, even though Thomas Jefferson you know, wrote this as a slaveholder, you know, the, the ideas lived on and, uh, you know, a century plus later, you can have Ho Chi Minh quoting these words, uh, you know, in his attempt to, to meet with an American president. However, it should be noted that, um, these words, while they are, they were, uh, you know, carried with, with colonized people were sometimes used in their arguments for their own liberation the reason they were choosing these words is not necessarily because these were the best expressions of, of freedom or the only expressions of freedom, but because they saw it as a necessary language to try to speak of their own of their own liberation. They're trying to use the language of the colonizer um, to to win the sympathy of those colonizers, and the easiest way to do that was to to make use of to uh, refer back to this document. However, it's uh, the people at Versailles were not as impressed by this. We'll just say, and so. I just want to end with this story. Um, the Japanese show up at Versailles um, and they see themselves very much as participants in this great victory. Uh, they had joined the side of the British and the French. The war had been won. The Japanese assumed that they had now entered a new phase in their history. Uh, they were a great power. They would have a seat at the table alongside, you know, the Americans and the French and the British and, and uh, you know, these these great powers of the world their moment had finally come. And so when the when the Japanese delegation shows up, they've got, you know, some interest in terms of territory in China and in the Pacific and that sort of thing. But one of the key things they want to present, maybe the most important thing that their delegation is going to present is this racial equality clause. And I can't remember if I've discussed this before or not. It maybe has come up, but it's a racial equality clause, which is going to then, you know, in theory, going to establish within this new global order that racial equality um is uh is really the basis of international relations this is really important because you know as we get into the 1920s 
all these kind of exclusionary laws are going to get passed. There's already been various immigration uh, restrictions on, on Japanese in the United States. Australia, by this point, has already established white Australia uh, immigration policy, which keeps out all Asians. And so, again, you know, with the world order having come apart, uh, the Japanese delegation, their vision is, well, we can, you know, as we build it back up again, we can um, establish racial equality as part of that. There is hypocrisy here because the Japanese are themselves imperial powers. The Koreans uh, were not allowed to leave, Korean uh, nationalists rather, were not allowed to leave Korea and come to Versailles because the Japanese would not give them exit visas. So um, they're not maybe the best people to, to push across the racial equality clause or to um, push back against imperialists. But uh, nevertheless, they're going to uh, uh, try to get this passed. And um, when they make their case, so the case is going to be made by the Japanese statesman Mokino Nobuaki. Um, and Mokino is going to try to, you know, convince the various people at the at the table. The racial equality document that Mokino presents is going to quote extensively from the constitutions of the Western powers. Again, like with Ho Chi Minh, they're going to try to use the language of, you know, the powerful to appeal to the, to those those powers. Um and uh, and the various Western powers, particularly Australians, United States, and the South Africans, did not like this very much, nor did the British or French, for that matter. At one point, Mokino referenced Thomas Jefferson's words that all men are created equal when uh, Lord Arthur Balfour of the British delegation angrily responded with his, quote, disbelief that a man of Central Africa was created equal to a European. So that went over like a a lead balloon, as they say, <laughs> did not really work. And, uh, and again, it just is is this moment where we can say, yeah, it's seeds of liberty, um, but we get into the 20th century and the very people who were supposed to have planted those seeds, the very people who were supposed to be, uh, in theory, um, caring for those seeds, caring for the, the the fruits that came out of those seeds. I'm still working on this, uh, this metaphor here. Um, you know, denied even the claim uh, refused to to believe that Thomas Jefferson actually meant all men. It was a toxic seed, wasn't it, Josh? It was a toxic seed, yes. Well, that's fabulous, you know, because again, the thing Benjamin Rush was saying is, you know, follow the the growth, follow the strain over time. You know, living in a twenty four hour news cycle, we want everything now, but you know, these historical fundamental movements, you know, evolve over time and in unexpected ways. And so that scene at Versailles that you're describing is one of those moments, you know, it's so pregnant with meaning, yeah. uh, both for what it does um, accomplish, and but but also in our case, what we're talking about, what it doesn't accomplish. Mm -hmm. So how the narrative, you know, doesn't evolve, you know, the national nation state narratives don't evolve, but continue to, uh, you know, engage in the pretense that somehow Woodrow Wilson was, you know, fully in that, that freedom, uh, um, you know, that freedom train that, that somehow, I'm, I think I'm mixing some metaphors now. <laughs> yeah, freedom, a seat uh, on a freedom train, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. A freedom current or something, you know, that yeah. went back to the Thomas Jefferson. But, uh, you know, we need to tell these other stories. I was thinking about Pedro Bizu Campos, who's a Puerto Rican, you know, who also shows up, manages to get himself to, Paris, you know, he'd, he'd come to the United States from Puerto Rico, which had been liberated from the Spanish, the Spanish-American War. And then he's, um, you know, he's full of hope that his island is going to get independence. And he comes to the U.S., he gets a scholarship, I think, uh, to Harvard. And 
you know, in, in many ways tries to assimilate to that sort of Jeffersonian viewpoint. And so he's full of hope there uh, in Versailles. And like these other guys you're talking about, he never even gets a, a, a any FaceTime with Wilson. Yeah, of course. You know, they just ignore him. They're still in the ignore part of that uh, gaslighting, you know, um, cycle there. And so, you know, it radicalizes him, right? He yes. becomes a, yeah. a Puerto Rican nationalist moving forward is very antithetical, you know, to a lot of what the U.S. was doing in the Caribbean and a lot of, uh, you know, the U.S. diplomacy toward the other American states. But, uh, yeah, uh, I think you did a nice job of that because it's um, it's the long it's the long story, you know, yeah. uh, without putting too fine a point on it, you know, from Gerard Winstanley, you know, or Benjamin Lay, maybe to, uh, you know, to these these disappointed uh, radicals, you know, at, at Paris. I mean, we call them radicals. They become really, radicals, yeah. Uh, when we talk about freedom, that, the idea we have in mind is the freedom they were talking about, you know. So yes, right, right. I guess we call them radicals to distinguish them from, the, you know, these kind of uh, establishment types or something. They're radical in the sense that they actually believe the words that, that you know, people like Thomas Jefferson said. Um, you know, but the other thing is, you know, again, going back to the Edmund Morgan quote you were, you were, you were talking about, that you, you know, Evan Morgan might say that the racial equality clause that the Japanese presented didn't matter because it didn't go through ultimately. I mean, it actually won. The, it was voted in. But um, Woodrow Wilson said, well, yeah, it went in, but there was a lot of objections. So we're not going to put it in. So uh, there you go. <laughs> there's your there's your global international order or international norms. Um, so it didn't matter in that sense that there was That's no racial equality. That's, yeah. oh, okay. That's right. Um, there was no racial equality clause put into the Treaty of Versailles it goes away. Um, it can be ignored, all that kind of stuff that that Morgan might say. But we can't really understand that post-war or I guess inner war and then post-war world that comes out of this without understanding the the failure of, of Versailles, the failure of something like the, the uh, racial equality clause, because what it does, it creates reaction. You know, somebody like Ho Chi Minh finds that there is no hope for, you know, his his people, his country, his, uh, you know, sense of of destiny in this liberal international liberal international order that Wilson and Smuts and all these others are trying to recreate. Um, you know that, you know, Japanese delegates who believe that they've now arrived in this moment where they'll finally be seen as equal, they come back from Versailles and they're despondent um, because what this means is that Japanese liberals themselves, who had been you know holding on to their influence in Japan, now are completely delegitimized. Um, and instead of these, you know, Western style liberals, Japan increasingly comes under the power of these more militaristic, ultra-nationalist, you know, we might call them fascist um, uh, uh, elites in their stead. And place after place and person after person, um, we find that the, the the failure of Versailles, the failure of Paris, um, or I guess you could say from, you know, the Wilsonian perspective, the success of those, of those treaties, the success of those conferences in reconstituting that same racialized global order um, is ultimately going to create a lot of the movements that end up churning up uh, across the rest of the 20th century and, and fundamentally help construct a different kind of world, if not a better kind of world, a different kind of world, you know, once we get uh, post-1945. Very well said. And, and this is something we're going to come back to, you know, in future elements to trace how these alternate currents uh I think I just moved into an electricity metaphor there, right? Alternate. <laughs> uh -huh. How do you see the divergent currents become uh, manifest 
you know, at, at, at different times in global history, you know, because uh, uh, as it turns out, Edmund Morgan, it did matter, you know, and it does yeah. matter and it's continuing to matter. And we want to finish today uh, by signing off um, uh, with some acknowledgement, shout out to the uh, nearly 40,000 University of California graduate student workers uh, who have been on strike um, over the last month. I, I know a couple of the bargaining units, I think, came to terms. Uh, some of the postdocs and some of the others came to terms. But the larger number, the majority of graduate students who compose the heart of the teaching uh, undergraduate, certainly undergraduate teaching mission in the University of California, the largest public education system in the world, um, uh, and who do the lion's share of that teaching, and not yeah. just the the classroom teaching, but also then the the stuff that Josh and I are uh, working to get through now, the grading, you know, the communicating yeah. with students, the office hours, uh, all that stuff. Without which that university system doesn't run, you know, because most of the tenured professors are responsible for upper division teaching, you know, the the smaller upper division courses and their specialties. And uh, so, yeah, the, uh, you know, the great promise of, of the UC system, you know, as an as an instrument of democracy, of educating, you know, the, the top students uh, only works uh, because of the labors of these uh, graduate students who themselves, of course, as graduate students are working on degrees, advanced degrees, uh, and taking these jobs to, uh, literally pay the bills. Uh, I've been there myself, Josh. I know as a graduate student at Northeastern, you you know what it's like. Uh, yep. uh, unless you're blessed with, uh, you know, um, you know, extra <laughs> fellowship dollars or something, chances are you're probably literally paying your light bill, your grocery bill, your rent, um, you know, by the proceeds you get from, from doing this very necessary work of the system. Now, yes. uh, look, this is something when I was in grad school at, at UC Davis, we were uh, some of my fellow grad students in the history program were, were working to affiliate with United Auto Workers. Uh, one of our great um, mentors at Davis was David Brody, the labor historian. So we had plenty of interest at the time and, and more than I did. Some of my other um, fellow grad students worked at this. And so here we are all these years later and we're still essentially fighting on the front lines, you know, to get a living wage. Right. Um, yeah from this very wealthy um, university system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in many ways it's even worse because, um, you know, higher education is in such a crisis right now that these graduate students who are basically being paid poverty wages and doing most of the work of, of higher education um, have less of a chance of receiving an actual tenure track, track job than ever before. So it's it's a grim situation and, um, Maybe we can post a, a, a link um, in the episode notes um, mm -hmm. where people can can uh, put some money into the the strike fund uh, because every little bit helps. And you know, as long as we're um, showing solidarity with with the graduate students, the nurses nurses are also on strike, um, railroad workers on strike. There's a lot of bad going on in the world right now, but um, it is heartening to see people standing up for you know basic human decency. Um, you know, in the United States. And then we can also throw out the, the people of Iran who are, you know, engaging in incredible acts of, of sacrifice and courage standing up to to that regime. So um, yeah, just keep all these people in your thoughts. And, you know, we're moving to the holiday season. So happy holidays to all our listeners. Our next episode uh, will probably be the one recorded in Philadelphia at AHA 2023. 
So uh, we're looking forward to that. And we're looking forward to you all getting to hear what goes on at the meeting. Take care, everybody. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop sucking a cycle so 